Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. I'm Bernice. And welcome to our very spooky Halloween special. Spooky. Where, where we're talking about Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs, and we invited a very special guest on. Uh, we invited Dr. Bernice Murphy. How are you, Bernice? I'm very well, thank you. It's my first time in Swords, so it's been a very exciting morning already. <laughs> um, an adventure for everybody. Uh, hopefully a bit less horrific than the film that we're about to talk about. But, uh, yeah, so I, we, when we, every Halloween we try and pick a sort of a scary movie to cover. And you we know, did, first year we did it, we did uh, The Shining. You say that, Darren, but this, uh, Swords, and specifically this part of Swords, is scary. Every taxi, every time I had to get a taxi here, the driver is like, I went into that uh, <laughs> place before I could never get out. And um, that, that was my experience the first time I came here, too. It was getting sort of trapped a little bit. Getting, getting, getting trapped. So I, I guess listeners might, like... Empathize uh, or sort of imagine the horror story that's being told. Yeah. But um, I, we invited Bernice on because Bernice is, uh, first of all, an expert in horror in general as a genre. Um, she teaches in Trinity College English literature with an emphasis on genre fiction in yeah, general. Yeah, popular fiction. Yeah. And uh, as, uh, my own research specializes in American horror and gothic fiction and film. So I've taught The Sands of the Lambs many times and my purse students have heard me pontificate on The Sands of the Lambs on many occasions. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's, it's interesting because I would have first uh, come across uh, your work uh, for the Rural Gothic, uh, which is the, the, the Rural Gothic, is it the Rural... Uh, I did a book about suburban horror called yeah. The Suburban Gothic and I did one called Rural Gothic, which yeah. is about the countryside and horror and I did a lot about films like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and a lot cool. of classic American literature as well. And it's interesting because this is generally regarded as one of the classics of American horror literature. Um, David Foster Wallace, I think, famously uh, listed both this and Thomas Harris's uh, earlier film, yeah. the earlier book, uh, Red Dragon, yeah. as his one of his ten favourite novels of all time. Yeah, he used and, to teach it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's remarkable because it is an enduring sort of classic. You could argue that a lot of the... Well, first of all, the forensic thriller as it exists today owes a massive debt pretty much to Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. Yeah. Everything that you have today, so Mindhunter, for, well, obviously Mindhunter is based on a true story. Yeah. That true story uh, was Harris's inspiration for like the character of Will Graham and it stuff like that. It has that feeling, hmm. Mindhunter, yeah. to us. Yeah. Like, it, 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 it certainly kind of like, it feel, feels like of that genre, whether it's kind of based on a true story or not. Or inspired yeah. by the story. Yeah. But, I mean, even shows like Criminal Mind CSI, they all draw from yeah. the work of Harris. It's a massive cultural shadow. And I mean, this film in particular, the one that we're going to talk about today, which is Jonathan Demme's adaptation of Science of the Lambs, which is the second novel that Harris wrote based on using the character of Hannibal Lecter. It's also the second film, although it has no real connection, tangible connection to Manhunter. Um, does Frankie Orpherson appear in Manhunter? I think he has a small role. It's not Barney, though. I'm not sure, actually. Okay. It's been years since I've seen Manhunter, so... I remember mostly the neon. Yeah, and the synth soundtrack. <laughs> and the fact that it's a serial killer movie that ends with Inagata de Vida. Uh, and, uh, was it Heartbeat uh, by Renton? Tom yeah. He's scarier than Hannibal Lecter, oh, with actually. The, yeah, with brilliant. a little tight over the top of his face yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, so we're going to talk about Silence of the Lambs, which is the hugely influential oh, thriller. that Obligatory Robocop reference, Tom Noonan. Uh, Robocop, Robocop 3 or 2? Two? 2, okay. yeah. Which doesn't exist. <laughs> Which is not a film at all. Yeah. Uh, written by Frank Miller. But uh, so... You should have stopped him there. Yeah. <laughs> and Last Action Hero. I actually really like that Noonan... And again, this is going to be a very... Sort and Heat. Of, yeah, Heat as well. He's, well, he's great in everything. House he of was... the Devil. He's bloody terrifying. And um, one of my favourite Noonan... And it's not really a Noonan performance. It's more a use of Noonan as an actor. 
is um, the pledge, the Sean Penn movie with uh, yeah. Jack Nicholson, where the big twist is that Tom Noonan playing a priest is not a serial child murderer. That is a twist. Uh, it's yeah. a fantastic twist. It's great use of Noonan as an actor. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about Science of the Lambs a little bit here, because this is, this is interesting. Bernice, do you remember when you first saw Science I of the Lambs? I do. Um, I was actually a very morbid, my chucky to learn. I was an extremely morbid youngster, and the book came out when I was about 11 or so, and then the film came out when I was about 12 or 13. And I was actually kind of obsessed with it before I'd read it before because I was couldn't get into films. So I would have seen it uh, on video when I was about 14 and it just blew my mind. I thought it was terrifying, really, really just an exceptional viewing experience and one that was a big influence on me, actually. So what it sort of inspired your interest in horror as a genre? Big time. It was around that period I was becoming really seriously interested in the genre um, and um, it absolutely prompted me to read and watch many other films of that sort and uh, rather embarrassingly I was about 13 I decided I wanted to join the FBI uh, because I was so inspired by the science I was in, in Northern Ireland it probably wasn't really an option for many reasons but I did do psychology for three months in college because of the science of the lambs it turned out I was terrible at it but it did actually in quite a quite a specific way change my life it's, it's amazing cause I, it's funny you should mention you did psychology for three months as well because yeah. I actually know several people who also did psychology for three months and their their response and their takeaway is that it's not at all what it looks yeah. like you in don't the get to hunt serial yeah. killers at all it's really disappointing there's more maths apparently yeah. That's a big That's, yeah you need to do stats that was the end yeah. for me so. well if, if the FBI are listening to this podcast which presumably they are yeah. because they're um, listening to everything this will be your, your my audition. recruitment pitch yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I did get to join an organization that's an acronym, TCD, but it's, it's, it's not, not quite the same. They don't give you a little badge, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we do have badges, but no guns. Uh, Bernice Murphy, TCD. Um, but yeah, but I mean, you can trace, obviously, the, the huge shadow the film casts over pop culture in terms of like, because during the 90s, you had the huge serial killer boom. And it, when you say serial killer boom, it makes it sound like there was a boom in real life. And in real life, in fact, crime bell. FBI boom as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of, yeah, so The X-Files, for example, is a TV show, but stuff like the movie Seven, which I suspect we may be covering next Halloween uh, would also be on there would also be a product of that Kiss the Girls you had this huge sort of explosion even The Cell starring Vincent D'Onofrio copycat yeah uh, single white female you had this huge explosion based primarily on the success of this film because this film famously went on to it opened a year before the Oscars which even back then meant that it was never going to get Oscar consideration in theory it was going to be forgotten about it was meant to be this like low February release that you know it would be released quietly made with a relatively low budget you know maybe get some good reviews and some people sort of like it as a piece of horror fiction but it became this massive cultural juggernaut it became this huge box office success for very rare thing yeah for 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 a horror movie to get that source of um um acceptance at the academy yes because a year after it was released which is like and again the oscars don't normally even award good movies that are released a year Mm. before the ceremony because the voters have a notoriously short memory but they nominated science of the lambs uh in in a ridiculous number of categories it won in at least five in the big five it won uh, director picture actor actress and adapted screenplay for ted tally it was i think the third film to win those three oscars if you count the screenplay oscars as the same category second film i think if you only specify adapted rather than original screenplay the other two being it happened this night and one flew over the cuckoo's nest which we covered so it was an absolutely amazing cultural phenomenon but because this is our halloween episode 
And because myself and Andrew have this debate every year about what we cover, because we cover movies that are on the 250 and we're sort of curtailed and limited by the choices that are on that list. Um, so we, we had a bit of debate about whether or not what counts as a horror movie. So we did The Shining our first year because we agreed on that yeah. one. The next year there was a bit of controversy over The Thing. Will I, we count The Thing as a horror film or a science fiction film? And so I, think I had it, never seen The Thing. <laughs> and I was like, no, that, that, that seems to me it's a... It's body it's, horror. It's a, it's a horror. It, having having never seen it, I was like, it's a horror. It's a, it's it's definitely a horror. Having having never seen it, I was ruling out like aliens. Alien. Is, uh, yeah, sorry. You were that the original Alien. It was like no, it's too uh, too much for sci-fi. Then and I, you ruled I, out seven. I ruled out seven. And yeah. you also ruled out Silence of the Lambs. Like the reason this is the reason why this is our third episode rather than our second episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I wonder think, why that I was. think we're getting like further away from <laughs> from, from 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 the like. Like they're all kind of horror movies, but they're they're I I don't think they're all really Halloween um, horror movies. Like in if um, okay, if, so what, if, what, how would you define a Halloween horror movie? Well, and keep in mind that we're working with the two fifty as I don't, stuff I, it um, I'm I I don't think I don't think it's it's a definition. Okay. It's more of a, a, a of, of a kind of a feeling. You you know it when you see it. Like like like. You know that, like um, movies, um, like the uh, Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween, uh, obviously Halloween. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Would Black Christmas the, be a Halloween movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the but the, that you know you know those sorts of even even things even things like the Sixth Sense seem seem like kind of um, the kind of um, horror movies that it makes sense to kind of like put out at around Halloween. Um, the, he's he's like seeing dead people, and uh, the, the 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 likes of Ish, I think, like fit. fit Is it very, because does it have one, to be a supernatural element? Is that what we're getting at here? Because that's like I think sh- so. Yeah, yeah, I think that helps, and 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 I think that's maybe why like the 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 Shining kind of like se- seemed like closest to a, a, a Halloween mm-hmm. horror movie, and then you get further away when 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 things become less and less supernatural. So, so a- like the, the, alien the likes thing. of this and Seven, yeah. um, obviously, like there's no supernatural kind of element to them at all. Um, it's, it's weird though because you mentioned like Halloween as a Halloween movie. It has no supernatural elements either. I would argue Halloween is much closer to this than it is to The Shining. Just because it's just yeah. because it's set around Halloween. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, the Friday the Thirteenth didn't originally have any um, supernatural. supernatural elements, but as they went on, it got more and more kind of absurd. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Bernice, though, I assume you would consider this a horror film. Yeah, I mean, one of the things when you look at genre a lot is that they're not, it's not a category where things are walled off from each other. This is a a horror slash police procedural hybrid. That's part Mm. of the reason why Harris was so original and what he did at the time. We're all really used to this now, but um, he created a blueprint for these sort of cop stories, you know, the hunt for a killer with pure gothic horror. I mean, Hannibal Lecter is is a figure who part of the reason why he's so successful is because he's actually a really familiar figure. He's the Machiavellian, you know, gothic supervillain. He actually has more in common with someone like, uh, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and he's referred to as a vampire on several occasions, um, than he would with a real-world serial killer, because Jim Gum is the figure who's more yeah. like 
your your Ted Bundy's or your Ed Gein. Yeah. But Lecter is pure classic Victorian Gothic horror. Yeah, so. I think I think that King has described Lecter as Dracula for the cell phone yeah. and email age, and I think that's a very very true observation as well. And particularly because he originates, I think, in Lithuania, isn't yes, that? Yes, he's literally descended from Eastern European aristocrats. You find out in Hannibal that he's a count. I mean, for God's sake, it's <laughs> not subtle exactly. In, in the book, he has an extra finger on one hand. Yes, he, the... ha- he also has maroon eyes and you know sharp little teeth. He's he's a psychic vampire basically. Yeah. The othering of sort of and I mean like this is the thing with Harris's work where Harris's work and again I've read I I, I have not read Hannibal Rising I cannot bring myself to oh, read it's Hannibal shite. Rising yeah um, <laughs> I think I started reading it yeah. He's definitely doing it for the pay. Oh no! Well, that, that was I think that was a contractual obligation, yeah. as far as I'm aware. Yeah. If you know, as a child, isn't that's he? it. Yeah, and he's, he's getting like chased out of kind of um, during uh, the Second World yeah, War. Yeah. It expands upon oh, the flashback that was already unnecessary in Hannibal. Um, but I think that the case there was it was literally you write this or we will bring in somebody else to write it. And with a gun to his head, he was like, yeah. "Okay, I'll, I'll write it." But with the even reading the novels, and it's kind of interesting when you compare them to the films, um, or at least when you compare when you them. Say a gun to his head. You mean like a big bag of money (laughs) (laughs) possibly who's to say really but um, when you read the novels when you read the Harris novels what's remarkable about them particularly when you contrast them with the early with the two early adaptations so Manhunter and this film is that they are much more gothic in tone. They read much more like horror movies than this looks like a horror movie, if that makes sense. Because mm. one of the things about Science of the Lambs that's quite striking, we'll talk about it more when we get this war zone, is how grounded it feels in some sense and how like realistic it feels and how much there's like an emphasis on physical space and putting the camera in places that underscore the almost realism of it. But when you read Harris's prose, it's a lot more lyrical, it's a lot more gothic. Yeah. And a lot of his themes like transformation and sort of like... It's it's more like a Frankenstein novel in in or his earlier works are about people who want to transform physically mm. in a way that recalls that feels to me more like a horror narrative about like being bitten by a werewolf or like trying to resurrect the dead in the style of monster or knitting together like a suit of of human flesh. Not to get too specific here. Well, in um, Red Dragon, the novel. Um the killer, Francis Dollarhide, the tooth fairy, literally kills uh, during a full moon. Yeah. Um, and, it, I mean, it's remarkable. If you read The Sands of the Lambs and Red Dragon straight after each other, it's really clear that Harris is just, it's exactly the same plot. Yeah. And Lecter plays exactly the same role. I mean, they're very different novels in some respects, but he's just substituted Clarice Starling for Will Graham. And the very fact of her gender then makes it yeah. an even more interesting story. And he, and he sort of, he's bulked up Lecter's role as well, I think, in the novel. And interesting, like, because I remember reading uh, Red Dragon and Red Dragon touches on some of the stuff that he really gets at in Signs of the Lambs about gender as well. Because I think one of the things, I re- again, I would have read them when I was far too young, I would have read them about the same age, 11, 10, yeah, 11, 12. That's right. Your, your, your parents thought it would be bad for you to watch these movies. Movies. So, so they gave the books. Uh, yeah, read yeah. even more upsetting Books can't be bad. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. American Psycho is the great example there. I wanted to watch American <laughs> Psycho and they gave me the book at the age of like nine <laughs> which was not a good call I, I wouldn't speak. recommend giving that to a nine year old um, yeah. but I remember when I, when I was 11 or 12 reading Red Dragon there's a passage in it and I remember it vividly to this day where Graham gets in a lift and it's a conversation between two other characters about women and it's really viscerally unpleasant. And I remember when I read Signs of the Lambs, that was what I thought about it. it was it was Harris taking that conversation and almost extending it over over an entire novel. And it's kind of interesting in that respect. But let's let's talk a little bit about the film. So we're gonna talk in a bit more depth in a moment, but just basically, Bernice, would this be do you think that this movie belongs on like a list of the top two hundred and fifty movies ever made? Let's say hypothetically there were a list maintained by some sort of database on the internet for movies. Uh let's say they had a list of two hundred and fifty movies. Do you think that Science of the Lambs 
should belong on that list. Oh, absolutely, most definitely. I mean, it's, even if you're not particularly fond of the film, you have to admit it was a paradigm shifter, it was a game changer. It established an entire subgenre of cinema and television in particular, and lots of, uh, particularly <laughs> those 47 different shows that are all about female profilers who've got a haunted past. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's, it did change the pop culture landscape. And I also think it holds up remarkably well uh, as, as a film to this day. Yeah. So I mean, it should be noted that like definitely. the year that it swept the Oscars, it was very clear that it was going to sweep the Oscars to the point where Billy Crystal showed up being wheeled on stage in the gurney with the mask on. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. <laughs> but like, this was the level of impact that it had. I remember going to see National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon, where they had clearly shoehorned in a scene with Anthony Zerb playing Hannibal Lecter in order to like capitalize on the success of the film that was released around the same time. It is absolutely massive. Uh, would it be on your own personal list of favorite films? Definitely. Um, I, I don't necessarily have one as well curated as you guys would, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it would certainly be in my top 20 all time favorites. Wow. And as regards horror films, probably in my top five. Wow. So it's pretty near the top. It's, I just think it, it holds up so well. It does. And, and yeah. again, we watched this relatively recently as well. You watched it relatively recently. Has it aged? Like, how has it aged? Like, what's it like coming back to it after all these years? Because it's separated at this stage by almost 30, by 25 years, I think, last year. So yeah. how, does it, how does it hold up? Well, I think in particular, um, particularly given some, a lot of the conversations that are happening in the culture here and, and or in the United States in particular about women, the workplace, about sort of the idea of structural misogyny, it really struck me watching the film uh, recently that... Um, it's 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 still an intensely feminist film, and even visually from the very start, you get the sense of Sterling try, star, star, Starling trying to make her way in a world that is predominantly dominated yeah. by creepy, uh, patronizing, condescending, or outrightly murderous men. And yeah. there's a there's a fascinating narrative about that there that I think I mean I think Harris is a, is a feminist actually. I think it's one of the reasons why I will defend Hannibal. I think um, Hannibal there's a really because um, her career has tanked after yeah. the Sands of the Lambs. There's an interesting thing about the FBI there. And in order yeah. to get really ahead, she has to depend on those very men as yeah. well. Yeah. And, and tolerate and put up with it as well. Um, and we'll probably talk a bit more in depth about that when we get to the spoiler zone. And then finally, on the off chance that like somebody listening to this podcast has somehow lived in like a bubble for the past 25 years and has not like absorbed Signs of the Lambs through the pores of their skin, <laughs> would you recommend... And what <laughs> like other motion. movies would you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> but would you, uh, would you recommend that they pause the podcast before we talk in a bit more depth about it and go out and see it? <laughs> and get an iPhone. <laughs> I think anyone who would consider themselves a serious film fan should watch The Sands of the Lambs most definitely yeah perfect and Andrew what about yourself yeah no the, the, like this 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 deserves definitely to be on the list it, it deserves to be kind of like up there in the in the top 20 it's a very internet movie database um, well it's, it's a 90s kind of nostalgia yeah. movie it's, it's, kind of, it's got that sort of I texture think the, the like... people the people who vote um, on, on, on the list have on, a particular sensibility that leads them there's again 90s nostalgia on the list and stuff like that yeah, I, I think people that... like uh, meeting our profile <laughs> of, of list users we, yeah like we, males in their 30s we constructed a yeah. survey uh, we went down we visited an expert and consulted on it as well um, yeah so it was and then would it be on your own personal list yeah yeah no absolutely um, I, I I think there's a great movie it's a fantastic kind of cultural impact um, it's very, 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 um, very uh, memorable and and uh, uh, quotable. Very kind of like it's it's um, yeah it's it and and it's a fantastic movie. There, um, great performances in it. 
I, I would agree with all that. It would, I think it definitely belongs to us. I think it belongs very, very high. It's rare that we have this level of consensus on, on the podcast. Um, it will be one of my favourite movies of all time. It's genuinely, it's clever, it's fantastic, constructed, it's amazing. It's one of those things where you have, and I think it is through and through a horror film, because you have, like, there's a lot of discussion in discourse. I, I've moment. never argued that these movies aren't horror movies. I, that wasn't a broad aside, to be clear. <laughs> that wasn't like a shade, as the kids call it, that I was casting. But it's more along the lines of, because you, you see a lot of discussion now in film circles around things like... I think they call it elevated horror mm. and you have stuff oh. yeah the, the yeah. idea that in order to that's me rolling my eyes audibly but yeah <laughs> um, the joys of an audio medium but um, <laughs> one of the things about uh, yeah so you have this big discussion at the moment about elevated horror where the idea is how do you make horror prestigious or respectable and whether or not you have to sacrifice the sort of genre or horrific elements in order to do that yeah. and one of the things I really love about Science of the Lambs is that it absolutely 110% is one of the best films ever made it's a fantastic cultural commentary it's got great performances it's wonderfully directed it's got a great soundtrack the cinematography is amazing we'll talk a little bit about the lighting as well in the film it, it's just beautifully made perfectly made very clever one of the best screenplays I think ever written um and it, it's just fantastic. But at the same time, it is also through and through, unashamedly and unapologetically a horror movie. Yeah. It never sort of compromises itself. It never sort of like tries to, to make itself seem more respectable than it is. I mean, like this is a, a, you know, a film about serial killers and a serial killer, one of the serial killers in particular, who might as well be Lucifer himself. And it leans into that in a way that is like it's unashamed. And it never treats that as something that compromises its ability to say something that is important or insightful or meaningful. Yeah, and, and the the the, um, uh, the one podcast that we've had that I haven't been on was was, was Get, Get Out. Out, but I've seen uh, Get Out, and I would imagine that that would be described in um, as a kind of like an elevated horror because it, it was it was it was like a, a well, your big issue with Get Out was you didn't scare you. Yeah, that that was the problem. It, it, it was that like oh, it was a horror movie that could 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 almost like kind of appeal to the academy and kind of like that you could attach a certain amount of prestige to and say it's an important movie. But you watch it and it's like, well, yeah, maybe perhaps all of that is true, but this isn't really kind of um, uh, scary in 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 it is certainly not in a way. Um, Silence of the Lambs is no. I don't like, think it's, you, I don't think it's scary. You, I think it's more wry. I think it's more playful. Than yeah, but you 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 want kind of like if 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 you're setting out to 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 do a horror movie, it's very important that you get that. You know. Yeah, but and 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 and, 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 and it's always subjective, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you were, I'm, I'm trying to. I mean, I know Get Out had particular reactions, particularly amongst African American audiences who viewed it in a very particular mm. way that perhaps you know three white Irish people sitting here on the sofa might you know yeah, what I mean I think because I'm less afraid of white people <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and still a little bit afraid yeah. but less and like uh, 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 garden parties and bingo yeah and, and, yeah, yeah all of that sort and, of stuff Andrew was like, I, I don't get why this is weird Andrew was watching Get Out and saying that seems like a really nice garden party <laughs> yeah, they're just yeah. interested in Chris yeah, like, yeah. I don't see why he'd feel uncomfortable with that I wish people asked me those sorts of questions yeah yeah all right, um, and then yes, so I would agree, and I would say if you haven't seen it, uh, yes, rush out to see it, um, stop the podcast, then come back and join us after the after the break, where we'll talk about the movie in a bit more depth. Spoiler zone. So, Bernice, <laughs> what is Silence of the Lambs about for you? 
Uh, do you mean a, ba- a basic plot synopsis or? It's it's this, it's intentionally an open ended question. So this it's, is that thing on Monty Python? Is is the competition <laughs> for in yeah, 30, seconds. In thirty seconds? And it's like what you gave there was was more a description <laughs> of the plot without any thematic. Uh, yeah. But it, it's designed it's designed to be an open ended question, so you can answer it however you want. Uh, whether what Harry it means to you. Keeping this question, by the way. Yeah. Well, in spite of most of the reaction to it, it's like what? I think it's, I think it's a good point. <laughs> Darren, Darren is always like. Of course, of course, this is the most obvious question for me to ask. But it, it, it allows, it's an open-ended question. So it can be whatever you want. So whether it, it's like particular scenes that jump out at you, whether it's what it means to you personally, whether you think it's saying something in particular, yeah. or even if you want to give a plot synopsis. I think that that may be a little, you know, sort of irrelevant at this point after the spoiler zone. Yeah. So what, what is it about for you? What, what does it say to you? What does it sort of... Well, it struck me, I hadn't seen the film in a few years and I'm uh, watching it before, because I did watch it, I've seen it, uh, before, this, before this podcast, is that it's a film that uh, usually when a horror film starts with a woman on her own running in the woods, she's running away from somebody. Uh, she's a victim, she's under she's under some sort of, you know, terrible uh, personal danger. Whereas actually, that's exactly how The Sounds of the Lambs opens. But what well, Clarice Starling isn't running away from anybody, she's training. She's in the context of the FBI Academy. And uh, I think it's, it's a really interesting point about the film that she's not a fully-fledged FBI agent. She hasn't quite sort of found her place there. So I think on one level, you could see this, but uh, I don't want to say like a working girl with guns. But, uh, <laughs> she's a young woman trying to make her way in the world. Um, but, but there's this really interesting thing where she's kind of on the job training. Um, and so I like that aspect of it. But there's that wider... Um, there's a wider story going on there about the fact that she doesn't quite fit into where she is by dint of her gender. There's a fantastic scene early on where she comes in. She's been called into Crawford's yeah. office. She gets into the lift. Surrounded by men who are towering giant over Giant men. And of course, Jodie Foster is about five foot. And it's just, it's a little moment, but I think it encapsulates so much of what this film is about. They're that, literally looking down on her. Absolutely. And there's a, there's repeated scenes throughout the film when, I, when you sort of notice that, you see it over and over again, where she's surrounded by men who are looking at her in various ways, either what with perhaps with you know uh, in, in a vaguely lascivious way or in just a condescending way, and repeatedly you are put in the position of being of seeing through her eyes as these men are watching her, and it's there's a, a, so many uncomfortable scenes in that film I think where she's trying to prove herself or the scene with Chilton um, where he's sort of coming yes. on to her and he's so creepy and horrible. Baltimore can be a great city if you have oh, the right guide he is awful and then he shows you the picture of the nurse and yeah. you don't see what Lecter has done but you see her reaction and you see Chilton and, almost savoring her reaction yeah. but I think this is around the time that she's this is immediately after she shoots him down as well so this is like this is almost like he's asserting yeah. control over her he's, he's putting her and in her place they're bathed in red light when yeah. it happens as well and you've yeah. got this like slightly uh, rumbling tone on the soundtrack and I think it's such an, an interesting scene because you get it established both with that and the horrible encounter with Migs in the asylum that in a way I think um, Buffalo Bill is sort of at the very extreme end of misogyny he's yeah. a man who literally sees women as things as cattle as almost, as leather as yes. they're literally just objects to him but um, there's all these different other levels that she has to navigate of sort of everyday uh, difficulties just by dint of being a woman in this world and I think that's I just think as a feminist film in particular it's it's really quite remarkable and, and, I mean just in terms of that it's worth noting that like even characters with whom we're, we're sympathetic so even like Crawford for example yeah. Scott Glenn who is you know he's, he's portrayed as like a paternal figure yeah. but it's made very clear that he's 
And again, Chilton, Chilton is the one who says it, but it's implied quite clearly that it's what he's doing. He's dangling Clarice in front of Lecter as an object. Yeah. He's using her just not based on, you know, he, he makes some remark about her ability. He observes that, you know, she asked lots of questions and she grilled him on the, the Bureau of Civil Rights record during the Hoover era. But he's very much using her as a piece of meat almost, as a lure for Lecter initially. He doesn't think that much of her. He doesn't like, yeah. he's not even, he's, he's bored. It seems like when he comes in, it's like, oh, I forgot I had this thing going on. And it's very much like he's exploiting her, not even for his own gaze, but to, to have other people. And there's that moment where she calls him out and says that other people look to you to see how to yeah. act. Um, and there's a lot of that in the film, even among characters who are presented as good, you know, are, are presented as allies to Clarice rather than like just straight up enemies. And it's fascinating how that permeates the mm-hmm. film. And it, uh, I think there's some really interesting parallels actually between Lecter and Crawford because they're both grooming her. They both in their own way exploit the fact that she doesn't have a father and she clearly has this kind of father fixation. Um, or you have this sort of thing where Crawford at the end is sort of the good father. But at the same time, he's also, I think, leaning into this fact that she's clearly in search of some sort of yeah. powerful male figure to guide her. And Lecter absolutely exploits that. So I think it's fascinating from that perspective as well. Sorry, Andrew, you're going to say something? No, the the um, the thing about Buffalo Bill as well is that that like he his his disgust and like this 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 taste for the 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 idea of the the, the woman as a kind of like an individual. He what once one uh, like the the um, she puts the lotion in the basket like <laughs> and she's trying to kind of like um, you know complain and you know like speak to him and um kind of go off script and and and, and he, he can't use like process yeah yeah um, it yeah. the lotion on its skin or yeah, else it gets the hose again yeah yeah it's it, it and it, like the 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 idea of 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 this the fact thing that he cares more about his as, dog as a person yeah. is really kind of like upsetting to him and he can't kind of um let that yeah. be and I mean, again, it's, it's worth pointing out that Bill is literally building a suit out of women. He's treating them as a raw, like a raw material, a resource to be mm. exploited, uh, which is, is harrowing and horrific I, of itself. I think it says a lot about misogyny. Yeah. Where, 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 where it's, um, it's men kind of like having that kind of inability to, to think of women in, in, in ways that aren't kind of um, instrumental. You know. yeah, it's the it's the it's the very 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 most extreme. Oh yeah. yeah. I think too. Um, I mean, some of your viewers are probably very well aware. But when you watch this, knowing that it's based on a on a case that actually happened, it's based on game, isn't it? It's based on a guy called Ed Gein, a yeah. Wisconsin bachelor farmer. Uh, in the nineteen, it was fifth in nineteen fifty seven. He was yeah. caught, and uh, he was essentially he murdered at least two women. Um, they're not sure he might have killed more, but he was digging up uh, particularly middle-aged women from the local cemetery and making clothing from yeah. there. He also inspired uh, Bates and Psycho as well, didn't he? He Getting did. Uh, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is also... He's, the, it's the, in terms of true crimes, it's the single most influential true crime ever on American horror. Uh, Psycho, Sands of the Lambs, Chainsaw Massacre are all... Drawn from that, which is is remarkable that it's that case and not say the Bundy case or the Dahmer case, which would yeah. be sort of though he's elements of Bundy too with the arm and the sling. Oh yeah, to lure to, to lure in, in and appearing vulnerable and stuff like that as well. That's why I never help men move furniture. 
<laughs> get into white vans. Yeah. yeah. Uh, would you I mind? Think that's get, good advice generally for yeah. anybody. Would you mind getting into the van? It's the big red flag there. Um, we did our Inception episode, and for it, we had a white van. Yeah, <laughs> but, but people didn't think about Inception. No, they thought about Silence and Loud. Yeah. But it, it is worth noting, and again, I think I think one of the things that's very very clever about it, and it, it's kind of striking. Because I described before we went into the spoiler zone, I described it as a very naturalistic and grounded film in terms of how it's shot. It's much less sort of stylized than to pick the two films either side of it. Much less stylized than Manhunter, which is Michael Mann doing like Miami Vice, you know, and and which I love because it has yeah. those wonderful shots of like the of beach. You love that. <laughs> I do love that. It's got that shot of yeah, it's, they're sitting on the beach and from this beautiful blue lagoon under a you know under a, you know under like a palm tree. Can I just interject and say uh, it's, if you've only ever seen William Peterson in CSI. He was beautiful in the eighties. Oh my god! To live and die in LA, and just yeah. a, it's it's and obviously you realise that's why he must have got cast in CSI yeah. because of the whole Manhunter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now, in in William, sorry, in his def- in William Peterson's defence, my grandmother would argue that his CSI years were his prime years. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, like he aged like a fine wine. Definitely. Um, well, most people from back then look better now. <laughs> <laughs> is, is William Peterson the exception? The inverse to that. <laughs> uh, but he, yeah, because he had I this. I don't think he went Johnny Depp, you know what yeah. I mean? I don't think he, he d- deteriorated as badly as some no. people did. But, he was uh, listening to uh, somebody talk about Alan Alda, him doing like an ad for Atari back in like 1984, and it's like, how does he look better now? He's <laughs> 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 he like this old man then, and he's still an old man now, but he just looks kind of like healthy and vibrant. High and, definition yeah, cameras, yeah. they do a lot. <laughs> um, but And then obviously Hannibal over the other side is Ridley Scott going like pure grand, you know, sort of yeah. guignol or whatever. Um, and it's, it's got this like bowels in or bowels out sort of aesthetic to it. It's got which, the brain eating scene. It's yeah. brilliant. It, I, like, I, I have love a, it. I have a huge soft spot for Hannibal because it's just this wonderfully grotty B-movie made to A-movie standards. But sitting in the middle you have Science of the Lambs which is a much more buttoned down mm-hmm. boxed in film but it's also within that consciously stylized. And um, Dem does these things and again it's kind of interesting Dem's career is interesting because he began like as one of the Roger Corman directors. In fact, Corman has a cameo here among the montage of like, you know, the bit where they're organizing the deal for Catherine Martin with uh, Lecter. So he's one of the guys on the phone there. Um, but Corman sort of brought him up as the sort of exploitation director. And then in the 80s, Dem became this sort of more drama focused, more sort of women in, in film focused. A lot of his films have female protagonists and are more sort of grand and feminist. And so what you have with Science of the Lambs is you have almost this fusion of the two. We've I mean, got this like, what could easily be an exploitation film about like a man making a suit out of people and this story that's focused very much on Clarice Starling as a character and like despite the fact that it is very grounded and it's very sort of mundane and it's very realistic in terms of that it's also very heavily stylized you mentioned those point of view shots which happen throughout which are like really disconcerting in a way that's quite hard to put your finger on until you realise what the film's doing mm-hmm. it's having you see through Starling's eyes but also look at Starling as well it puts you the audience in a perspective where you are you are the male gaze it's well, literalising well so much of this film is about identification and empathy and the lack thereof yeah. and the, the framing and the visual uh, techniques really really underline that sorry Andrew and, and, and I think Dem does a fantastic job that some kind of um, like like a lot of kind of male directors and storytellers are very good at talking about misogyny but it's from the point of view of of, of a man of a man so like, like Inception we, 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 yeah so like, like we, we spoke about Inception recently and it, it's it kind of like I, like one of my big takeaways from it is there's a movie all about it in, in 
um, misogyny, but it, it's 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 all about like how it it kind of exists and what's in, a man's in, perspective in a man's head. Yeah. Um, without without really, I think un- the world needs more stories told from the male perspective. There really aren't enough of them. But it, but that was the problem with Inception yeah. is that it didn't um, really have a victim yeah. of misogyny or even a female witness it of that misogyny. Yeah, it just, it, it, um, whereas this movie, um, I think, does a very good job of both. Mm. Where 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 and and I think the female um, perspective of it. Is 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 kind of first and foremost in the movie, mm. um, uh, which is interesting because it, it's 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 from um, like a, a a male director. I think he does a great job of because uh, like I I think men have things to say about misogyny because misogyny doesn't come from women. Mm. Yeah, um, it's, a, pro- it's yeah. a problem women can't fix misogyny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, it, it's it's yeah it's 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 something that they're a victim of. So I, well well yeah. But I mean, just in terms of those shots, though, one of the interesting things is the director of photography, who's and I I'm gonna mispronounce this. This is one another two fifty trope where Darren mispronunciates a name. Um, Tak Fujimoto, mm. uh, who is the director of photography on it, he actually in those shots of characters staring at one another and those wonderful head-on shots that define the film and. Once you sort of twist, because I remember watching it the first time and thinking, this is a very ordinary, very plain film, like in terms of cinematography and style. And then when I watched it a second time, uh, or when I watched it, like when I was when I was an adult and wiser in my in my years, it was like, oh wow, this is sort of striking. He, one of the things he does is he subtly backlights the eyes. Um, so there's this your eyes you don't even realise it like and again watching you don't see the lighting on the eyes it's not like uh, it's again if Ridley Scott were doing it in Hannibal it would be a spotlight on the eyes uh, but here it's it's this sort of like subtle lighting that just sort of draws you into it makes the eyes glisten in a way that makes it draws your attention to the fact that you are looking at people looking and again you, you think of any number of shots you think of um, Crawford when Clarice comes into the office studying her across the desk you think of Buffalo Bill when he opens the door sort of staring at her trying to be vaguely like polite and and not at all succeeding um and you also even think of like when she's visiting the the nerds or the guys in the is it the smithsonian yeah uh where they're talking the entomologists where even that where you know the the awkward one is sort of he's almost unable to look at her but you still feel the sort of discomfort where he's kind of do uh do you go on dates much agent starling that sort of thing um and it kind of draws your attention to how it must feel to live through that every day Mm. um and just as ambient background noise which is striking and sort Mm. of really sort of because i mean we talked a little bit about like modern political context one of the things about like the modern political context and say the me too and times up is how for and again this is men like me or whatever it was i don't think i ever really appreciated how common that stuff was or how that must have felt every day like to, to live in a world where you are being looked at or stared at where you're subject to this stuff which to the person doing it, people is, look and stare at you. Don't? I, I, I am beautiful. Uh, I am beautiful. Um, I can't help it. I just uh, I, I wake up like this. Um, but being being more serious and being less flippant, it, it, sorry. One of the big things about that for me was realizing that that experience of putting up with that every day and and several times every day was was striking revelatory because I'd never thought about it because that wasn't my lived experience. And watching Science of the Lambs more recently or since then. 
kind of that's what what I took away from it was those shots of being looked at and examined and how you have and again this is one of those things where you have the the metaphor so perfectly tied in because obviously it's a movie about forensics it's a forensic thriller and it's about examining and interrogating the evidence and you have this great recurring motif of like people scrutinizing and interrogating and staring at Clarice where even if they're not sizing her up to make a person suit of her they're still not recognizing her as a person and more treating her as an object I don't think Buffalo Bill would take her as a as as a, I think as maybe a, she's a little she, short. Well, yeah, they have yeah. that. They mention that in the book. He says, you know, she's 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 isn't big enough to be part of a suit, but she yeah. he's going to take her hair. Ah, the book ah. decides he's going to, yeah, it's going to be one of his wigs. Yeah, the um the book the book is is somewhat more disturbing, I think, because it can get you into like, her hair as well as we learn in in in, in, in Hannibal, yeah. <laughs> like not. Not creepy at all. She's also a whole sort of, of, She's his replacement little sister. But also lover. Creepy in, lover in, thing, yeah. The novel of Hannibal is interesting. And again, we don't want to talk too much about the other Hannibal Lecter projects. But the novel Hannibal is interesting because it's like... You're right, you have the first third, which I think you alluded to before that, touches on the idea of like sexism within the FBI and the idea that Starling has been marginalised mm. and dismissed and like locked away in a basement. Also, and I, stuff. Say, I think class is really a really crucial part of this. I mean, she's from West Virginia. Yeah. She's uh, The accent is really important I think in that film yeah. she, she sort of um, well, two strikes against her really. well, well that's yeah. it it's, Dr. Um, Lecter Dr. Lecter. <laughs> um, sorry Dr. Lecter I do, I do like that when they re, when they recast as Julianne Moore Moore dials up the, the accent as yeah. well which I think is in keeping with the film being more stylized but it is it's um, it's a Kruger the lawyer played by Ray Liotta Crendler um, Crendler um, yeah. who in, in the sequel becomes again he's the very living embodiment of yeah. this misogyny and also he's classic. ruined her career he's yeah. a horrible he's basically a Harvey Weinstein figure because yeah. he's because because she didn't speak to that, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like because it's I told you to go back to your husband, your wife. Yeah. Um, and and again, the response to that is to denigrate her not just as a woman, but I think he uses cornbread as well yeah. as as an example, just to denigrate her in terms of class. And I think Lecter himself refers that like she's worried that she's just one generation from poor white trash as well. So there is definitely a sort of a class element there as well to it. But it, it's actually the, one of the things I love about the film is that the, the characteristics about Starling, which. Um, sort of are against her in some ways, which are her gender and her class, give her the very tools in which to catch Buffalo Bill because she's able to empathize. She's the only woman working on the case. She's able to see these victims. This is one of the things I really like about this film that I think distinguishes it from many of the copycat films that came afterwards, including including copycat, (laughs) (laughs) which is that even though you see them very briefly, or or it's different with Catherine, you get to see a little bit more of her because she's obviously in the well, but you get a sense of them as humans, as, as people. And you get, you know, like that wonderful scene where she goes to Ohio, Belvedere, Ohio and talks to Frederica Bimmel, the first yeah. victim's father. And she looks around her room and she's seen that room with completely different eyes yeah. from anyone else who's been. And that's why she finds the, she finds the music box yeah, of the buried pictures. In the, yeah. Because she has, she's able to empathise with that, that woman who's from a similar socioeconomic background. Uh, he's also a woman and she's able to, it gives her... It's kind of like her superpower in a way is that she has this level of understanding of the victims that um, the men around her don't don't actually because there's stuff that they would never even think of that comes to mind for her. Is she the one who figures out that he's making a suit as well based on the cuts that he's he's implying he's sort of taking from her? She opens the wardrobe and she sees the darts and the dresses and she thinks he knows how to sew. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that's something that a traditionally masculine law enforcement character would never think of. And it's kind of, it's, it's interesting as well of that. Um, just before, because we're going to, we're obviously going to talk about Hannibal Lecter as one of the big legacies of the film. Is it worth talking just a little bit about Jane Gum and in terms of that, like, because we talked a little bit about him as a representation of misogyny. One of the more controversial legacies of the film and something that hasn't necessarily aged well yeah. is the approach, the sort of the blurring of the lines 
in terms of is it transphobic in mm. terms of its portrayal of gum as a man who wants to be a woman now to be clear Lecter very very clearly and very explicitly in a way that was far ahead of its time then and has aged relatively well makes it exquisitely clear that he is not a transsexual yeah. uh, but there's still an element of that through it and I think it's perhaps it's harder to sort of dismiss out of hand when you read Harris's later work so I think of for example Hannibal yeah. where you have the character of um the sister, Mason Verger's sister. Oh, um, God, yeah. Who yeah. is like this gross parody of a lesbian. Yeah, she's well butch, massive. Um, they're tr- she, she sexually assaults. I think she's on steroids and yeah, everything. Well, I There's think a whole, we can yeah. dismiss that because yeah. we're talking about Silence of the Lambs. Okay. But I'm saying... Whether 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 Harris is transphobic is yeah or 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 homophobic or not even like kind of homophobic but like um, uh, maybe kind of like um, uh, certainly but behind the times now yeah certainly certainly very cringy to a a best case scenario to a modern day audience as I I recall correctly she kills her brother by sodomizing him with a cattle prod if I remember correctly yes to get his sperm to have his baby so that herself and her partner can inherit all the money there's a lot of stuff in there that that's much different in the TV show. Is, yeah, the TV yeah. show. Fuller was very conscious about that. But yeah, to get back to science of the last. Now there's much more acceptance of that sort of thing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, we're, we're more enlightened as a culture <laughs> about cattle prod stimulation and prostate. Yeah, yeah. The the um, but uh, like, is there a strong argument for this being transphobic, or is this kind of like a, there were a, protests a against it at the time? Uh, yeah, there were very. Uh, there was. Um, I glad, can't remember I the name. I was glad. Yes, there were there were gay rights organisations who felt that the film was um, because I, th- I think as well they felt that because um, Buffalo Bill is presents as a very stereotypically kind of effeminate gay man, yeah. that they felt that uh, that it was feeding into preconceptions of, of you know. So the sequence where he hides, he tucks and yeah. hides, for example, the fact that he he sews, which is it's seen controversial as controversial then, yeah. for sure. Um, I don't. I, I like and, um, now, it's it seems like a weird kind of like a it's it's like um Buffalo Bill is one of ours and and you're por- portraying him in 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 this really kind of negative light it's like he's a he like whether whether he's whether he's gay or whether he has any kind of like uh, issues or 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 um around like his kind of concept of his of of like what what his are gender, his, his gender yeah, yeah yeah what and um and what yeah whether any of that is the case is like that you're like it, it it's it's not i i don't see how it's um it's creating i mean it's it, up, it's it's up to them to kind of interpret that but if if if, if um it's strange that 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 they would be like i i i don't we we don't we don't like this um, this this portrayal of it because it seems like he's a gay person or or, or, that, or that, that 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 he's a person with uh, with like non-conforming identity. It's like yeah, like all that might be true. It doesn't reflect on. I, th- on... I think in, in part it's because if you can t- if you. Buffalo Bill is is a character who owes a lot to the likes of Norman Bates, who owes a lot mm. to Ed Gein, who was a, a, allegedly, uh, according to some uh, uh, historians, a, a killer who had gender identity issues. So you have a long line in the horror genre of characters inspired by Ed Gein, of which Buffalo Bill now is probably, and Norman Bates are the most famous. And what you had was this, um, I suppose, 
problematic association between, I mean, in psycho between cross-dressing and, uh, and and murder, transvestism and murder, um, I should say. And then you had Brian De Palma. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, Brian De Palma's dress to oh. kill. And um, so you actually, and, and I think what you had as well was this was within the context of gay rights becoming a more notable part of the, you had the AIDS crisis. And I think, uh, I think it's because when you consider Buffalo Bill as part of a continuum of particularly yeah. male characters with gender identity issues who were presented within the horror genre as being serial killers and their pathology being intrinsically connected. I don't think because the film, in fairness, and the yeah. book, as you both rightly say, scene. both recognise this, I think, and in the book as well, you're he's told rejected from John he's not Hopkins, a transsexual, yeah. he just... He just thinks he's one, yeah. but you still, in a broader sense, you could see how there'd be, yeah. you know, sensitive sensitivities there. In and I, I think that's perhaps it, that it was it's, it's a of it, you know. culmination of that fact. And I, it's a culmination of like a trend and it appears throughout um, horror fiction as well. And particularly um, serial killer fiction as well has this sort of preoccupation with gender identity. And I think like, it, I suspect that that stuff is more a reflection of like, heteronormative anxiety over stuff like that so for example Alien and its fixation on the idea of like warping yeah. gender and stuff like that as something that upsets straight what men what if men could get pregnant that, that's it yeah yeah. Or, yeah what if they were <laughs> what, and, and they can be sexually assaulted but what if they can be sexually assaulted and impregnated yeah. um, I think like there's something kind of like um, uh, that can be kind of like traumatic and upsetting about sexuality per se yes. Like and 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 kind of like but a lot of body horror kind of like feed, feed, feeds into that and that it's not kind of like a exclusively a queer um, thing. Like 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 and and you. Well, I think this is getting back to the whole male gaze thing, the straight male gaze thing, where this is something that's horrifying, presented as horrifying to straight men because uh, it, it plays I, into stuff I think about it's, like. I think it's upsetting to 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 um, and confusing for the person experiencing it, not just for the person witnessing it. Like, like, like when, when, when one is, I, I think in, in, I hope, um, I get the sense increasingly that it's, it, that it's no longer as, um, traumatic to, 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 to grow up as a, as, a, um, as, as a person with the, like non-conforming, uh, I imagine gender. it's still very I, Yeah, I think it is still quite difficult, but I, 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 um, the, the, the thing is that the, these, these things are um, kind of uh, traumatic in and of itself, and sometimes the horror genre is can 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 be an interesting way to kind of. Um, I I would be more skeptical, and I don't think that's that's what it's portraying. I think it's more targeting the idea of like a straight male heterosexual gaze of being uncomfortable with this stuff, and I think that I think that Bernice is sort of right in that this is. This is a culmination of a trend that continues, like it continues from here as well into the, the horror movies and slasher movies of like the the nineties as well. But you also, it also, it's like a, it's a crescendo of it because this is a film that won five, the five biggest Oscars. Actually, Brenda Palm has done it twice. He did it, it in Raising, Raising Kane, Kane as well, well with John Lithgow. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. I think like like you have Ted Bundy talking about like his kind of his ob- obsession with pornography and the 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 the, the, the kind of like way. Um, that his um, kind of uh, uh, pathology or crime sort of developed was 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 through these the, this kind of like obsession with like progressively more and more extreme kind of like uh, versions of pornography and well, you also this, have this Dahmer is, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, well. and this is all kind of like uh, straight stuff. I I I understand obviously why. There is uh, um, more sensitivity in 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 the um, 
uh, gay and transgender community, which is totally understandable. But I, I, I think like telling kind of having these stories where, 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 where you're talking about these sorts of things, it's, it, it's all, I think, relevant in, 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 in the context of a horror. Um, and I think if it, like, like, I don't think we should be shy about kind of, cause it, it, it's like getting people talking about them. I, 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 and 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 while 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 I think a person has like a right to 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 express their kind of like uh, this this taste with it, I want to hear more about it because I I, I I want to kind of like like understand it. It's 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 not just enough to hear that 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 somebody is kind of like of of offended by it. I, I want I want to know why. I'm... I think maybe it's part of the issue is that I mean I, I kind of see what you're what you're saying there, but at the same time, if this was a time where trans issues in particular were still mm. most people would not, would have had no idea this might have been the first time you'd ever heard the word transsexual used, but just the term that's used within the film I should say, um, and so if this is the only association you have in say, popular culture oh, and there's no other forms of representation right, yeah, yeah. for for yeah. individuals who happen to be trans or somewhere on, on so you say you oh know, the, trans like uh, like Buffalo Bill yeah yeah, yeah, yeah if that's your only exposure if you don't like, have a like range of a yeah, range yeah. of a range of representation there which obviously which you, you would now, have now it's yeah. a very different um, pop mm. culture milieu thankfully yeah. and things are changing very quickly but if that's your only that would have been I mean I'm, I'm 100% sure that was probably the first time I'd ever come across the word transsexual at that time. I'm not sure if that's now considered an outmoded description or not. I'm not sure about the yeah. exact nomenclature there. But, um, yeah. you know, so I think that would have been for many people your first, yeah. even though they say, but he's not a transsexual, it's still... And he was rejected by Johns Hopkins yeah. as not, he just thinks yeah. he is. It's still yeah. an entire conversation about transsexualism, which is and like, say, this is the closest his, thing his that His pathology is a thousand times more savage, which implies, implies that, that, there's a level that of... it's a pathology as well. Yeah. So even though you can see them go... See, you can sense they know they're on site if you grind, they're trying to compensate for it. That's another way yeah. in which things have changed is, is, is that, or, or, uh, like, um, is, is, is that I think back, back then and, um, it, it, it was still kind of like, um, classified by a lot of people. On the scale, on the D, uh, is it DSM or? The DSM, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, like homosexuality was on there until Godman. It was fairly. I think it recent. was seventy four or yeah. something. It was quite. It was in the seventies anyway. Yeah. That yeah, it was. That it was considered like a, an indicator that a person yeah. is of, not of mental sound mind. Um, but yeah, and it, it's interesting. Like Dem himself, he passed away uh, two I'd years ago. Imagine veganism was probably on it <laughs> <laughs> at some stage. Um, these commies don't like me. What the hell is wrong with them? Um, but you also like you have um, Dem himself. To be fair, uh, has acknowledged like he was interviewed by Glad and stuff like that. And in the years since, he said that he he understands the criticisms. He didn't even like it. It, it obviously wasn't anything malicious. And to be fair, it's a very gracious. And you, you look at like him dealing with that criticism, yeah. and you think that's a very gracious way for an for an artist to deal with it absolutely yeah. he's like saying I didn't think about it I, it certainly yeah. wasn't my intention it's there I, I would be now that I've heard these complaints much more sensitive going forward and much more understanding yeah. um, and it, it's I don't think it's an insensitive movie I think no. like I think it's good of him to, to, to kind of accept that he could be more sensitive 
Yeah. It's but a product of its. I mean, you can't it's because it's the, so the context in which it's made, the historical yeah. context. It was written in 1988, the novel, yeah. to, to give an example. I think yeah. because it's such a big movie as well. Yeah, that's it. The yeah. onus really comes on it to kind of like um, don't screw you, this up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so we talked a little bit about James. Gunn. I guess the the big thing then is Lecter himself, the character as played by uh, Anthony Hopkins. I can't Hopkins. believe I call him Mister Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> that's Doctor Lecter. Thank you very much. Part of his character yeah, yeah. is that he's the doctor. He, well, oh, what? I've been doing some research for this podcast and like obviously lots of great information came up like for example obviously it was meant to be Michelle Pfeiffer turned down the role of Clary Starling. What a different Starling. film it would have been. Oh yeah and Gene Hackman yeah. originally he Jodie Foster I... wanted to buy the rights Gene Hackman outbid her and was supposed to direct and star as Lecter. The, um, the, the thing about um, I think Pfeiffer would have per, 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 perhaps been 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 good in it. I I think the the you know the thing about like kind of dangling um someone kind of like in 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 front of Lecter. I think like um obviously like for it to be a woman, but there there's there's kind of like an intelligence that that uh, to Michelle Pfeiffer uh, that that Jodie Foster also it's, it's has. Right. I, I know that but she's is... a much more particularly in the eighties. I mean, I I think she's yeah. a fantastic actress, Michelle Pfeiffer, but yeah. a much more glamorous figure yeah and, and, and it's kind of funny yeah. when you say dangling it's sort of an ordinariness to foster which yeah. i think i don't and i don't mean that as a critique but i think she's someone you would see walking down a normal street perhaps whereas exactly. michelle pfeiffer is michelle pfeiffer yeah. you know yeah it's... like maybe a migs might get excited thank you for that andrew now i'm imagining walking down a normal street thankfully there's not very many <laughs> migs yeah um, depends yeah. what bus route you're on yeah, I <laughs> but now, now i'm imagining uh, a version of coolio Gangster's Paradise, which is Michelle Pfeiffer rapping in front of uh, Anthony Hopkins. Um, but yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't rap. <laughs> okay, fine. But doing the whole like you know, sort of like the badass sitting on a chair backwards, tough love teacher thing with Anthony Hopkins sitting there. But like, well, in, no, Anthony Hopkins is standing uh, in 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 that case, uh, Coolio. <laughs> <laughs> May we all aspire to be Coolio. But one of the things I read that really stuck with me it really I, confuses me what you had in mind. There. Yeah. Um, but what really sort of sticks with me in terms of um, like the commentary that I read when I was doing sort of research for this was Nathan Rabid's observation and read I never thought it but reading it it's kind of true that it's a statement on how Americans view intelligence and education and intellectualism Mm. that Hannibal Lecter might be America's most beloved intellectual now maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson takes it now but I mean I don't think so I, 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 there, there's still like um, as like like I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson is very good at kind of like communicating these things, but I think a lot of his audience are nerds. That's fair. And he's very he's he he's a very uh, he's a very dorky guy. Like as cool as it uh, as, as he is as as, as he is, he's like very dorky. Um, and the, the, I, I, I think um, I could. I, I imagine Hannibal Lecter um, is, 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 is still like much, much more kind of beloved and mainstream. So <laughs> yeah. speaking. No, I think. I mean, when I'm talking about the TV show, but it really runs with this idea of him as. Um, I mean, it's it's his social class as well. He's yeah. very he's he's the very embodiment of high culture. Mm. He's listening to to Bach as he you know beats the. <laughs> That is somebody with a truncheon beats them to death. And the he's cuisine. You know, he's yeah. eating his. He's demanding the his lamb. Like the show. Show. Oh, he wants to eat something out of his, some creature out of a zoo next. Yeah. It's all rarefied taste. It's all about him being a gourmand, and you know, the, almost the, like a, par- a parody as, of an intellectual. Yeah. Belvedere as viewed from Florence. Yeah. Yeah, Florence. Um, and and it is and like it, and he's also European. <laughs> 
to make yeah. it find out good. in later and stuff. But, but even, even you can see film, it's anti-intellectual in that sense. Even you know? in this film, and obviously in uh, Manhunter, where he's a much rougher. Like there's like watching well, Manhunter, it's very he's a real clear. scumbag in Manhunter. Yeah, that's it. Like it's very yeah. clear that like what it's very clear exactly what Brian Cox would do to William Peterson if he it's got Brian out Cox of the cell. Brian Cox from Dundee. Yeah, yeah it's a very different. Um, whereas, um, but even even then, there's an element of like casting British actors in the role or foreign actors in the role because obviously it's it's Cox there, it's Lecter for the next Mads three, Mikkelsen. and then it's Mads Mikkelsen. Um, and I love those ads for Carlsberg. Oh, he's where brilliant. It's, it's like well, if Hannibal yeah. Lecter doesn't drink beer. But if Hannibal Lecter drank beer, it would probably I, be Carl. I will just admit here that Mads Mikkelsen is my favourite Hannibal Lecter. Hands I would done. probably go with that as well. I'd probably done. go with that too, because I hate the show. But <laughs> I, 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 I um, like, I, I, I find, what's his name? Uh, like, will Graham, you dancing. Will, will, yeah, will, will Graham is like, like, um, I love Andy's I like, I like this, um, I like, <laughs> I like this pitch you have. Can we put somebody like really um, handsome with like uh, f- uh, foppish hair? Because he's so hot right now. We just need the right sort of project for him. Are you sure this is the the, the right the, one? The, the the right thing we're thinking. Like like we've got Mads Mikkelsen. We're trying to make something maybe like kind of prestige television. It's like no no. We'll just put this guy in. But, the, he is. But he always looks so effectively anxious. He always looks like he just remembered he's left the cooker on yeah. at home or something. He's, <laughs> <laughs> I think he's like, good at that. Like, you dancey's Will Graham looks like a delicate flower yeah. who just needs love, and everybody's um, always trying to look after him or. Well, no, I'm going to say Crawford isn't. <laughs> um, and again, Crawford, again, Crawford is the anti Hannibal Lecter. You mentioned the Good Father, Bad Father, but like throughout Harris's work. Crawford is presented as the anti-lector figure. He's just as prone to manipulate, just as prone to, like, manoeuvre people for his own benefit or his own gain. I can't imagine that Will um, uh, character in that as any, like, as any sort of a match for, for, (laughs) for, it's ridiculous. It's like a little puppy versus a tiger. Um, Yeah. It seems like the guy that the lector wouldn't even bother killing. But that's why why lector finds him so interesting because he is so pure. Like, I mean, my my favourite... I suppose we don't want to talk yeah, about too this much about that. He's also yeah. very feminized in it right from the start. Yes. Well, I mean, my, my favorite detail, one of my favorite, like, and again, Fuller gives great interviews. If you're ever, like, even if you don't like Hannibal, read Fuller's interviews about Hannibal because they're fantastic. Mads Mikkelsen. My favorite detail about Hannibal, the TV show, is that Brian Fuller talks in interviews about how, as a gay man, he never understood male friendship. He never understood how men could hang out and spend time together as they do. That was a cross so, of the show. That's it. No, no, but he. He wrote Hannibal as his exploration of what he thought male friendship was like. And when you view it through Someone that who prism, doesn't understand it. who doesn't understand it, when you view it through that prism, it actually makes a great deal of sense because it is, it's immediately like this weird nurturing, not sexual until it is sexual. Oh, it's very homoerotic. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. You yeah. You've seen the murder- final episode. You called oh, us Jesus. murder husbands. Um, <laughs> it would be like you and I writing something about male friendship. Yeah, it would yeah. be very, very intense. But to get back to talking about Lecter, um, and in particular Hopkins Lecter, Hopkins Lecter is absolutely fascinating. And it's one of the great entry sequences or introductory sequences in television where the camera follows it's it's from her perspective as she's walking through this like and again we talk about how grounded and realistic it is the institution is a gothic castle mm-hmm. it's like something from james wales frankenstein that's it she passes through i think yeah. seven gates um to get there which i think is you know sort of like seven circle of hell or whatever but it's also um i think she passes through a similar number later on when she goes to um gum's house as well and also goes down to the basement there to confront that monster but the introductory shot of Lecter, uh, which is great because he enters the shot without actually moving. 
The camera pans and reveals that he's standing there at attention waiting for her. And it's one of the great, mm. it's one of my favourite introductory shots in the history of cinema. And it just captures a lot of what makes... It makes me just like thinking about it. Yeah. Like how that kind of like whole shot is just kind of like indelibly... Burned of, on the retina yeah. almost. Um, and it's, it's so perfect as well. And that's, I think, a large part of what makes Hopkins Lecter here. And I mean, we, we can talk about his other performances in, in a little while, but here... It's the stillness mm. of him that makes him so effective. And it's so underplayed until you get to a certain point in the narrative. But even before that, there's a sense that he's so perfectly coiled. Yeah, like like the, I guess, I, I, I think you alluded to it here, but it, it, it's, it's a real sort of like uh, problem kind of trying to, um, trying to think of Lecter as this like um, physical... Um, uh, 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 um, force like, psychopath who can like assault and like butcher people. It 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 it, it's, it seems to make sense in 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 terms of him like being a doctor who can kind of like prey on 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 people who are vulnerable. People. Yeah. yeah, like he but, talks Migs. He he, talk, he talks Migs into swallowing his own tongue. Yeah, which and uh, the stuff like that makes sense, and the 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 stuff. Um, with um in i think it's in hannibal with 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 like um convincing somebody to cut off their own face yes and, yeah. uh, mason verger yes yeah um but when 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 you see him like kind of like uh, 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 beating up like kind of police officers and that's the climax of, of this film yeah it 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 it, it, it it like it, it it works well, but you're 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 kind of wondering a little bit, like really? Well, that's... It, 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 like what is he doing in in that? Um, is it like it, at some point is like kind of um, is Clarice kind of just like walking in and he's doing all these press ups? <laughs> like, I I don't think he is doing any of that. I think he's writing. His he's, cardio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's painting. He's There's a lot of, of prison like... tattoos on those biceps that you don't see because he's wearing the jumpsuit. Yeah, I mean um, maybe it's not such a problem because I I think in the night in in like like as we've come on now like the, the well we the... talked about like the male body in fiction and how like yeah. modern male bodies are objectified um, to the point. Where like, and this is the difference between like, say, the two Blade Runners, where in the first one Harrison Ford takes off his shirt and it's sort of it's like a dad bod, and yeah. in this one Ryan Gosling takes off his shirt and it's like you could grate cheese on it if you felt the need. Yeah, to. yeah. Um, they, were, they were talking about like uh, I was uh, listening to um, I think it was like Nick Kroll or Joe Rogan or somebody talking about Spartacus. <laughs> about, about, oh, the um, old 1960s search. Um, yeah, Kirk Douglas, Kirk, Kirk, Stanley Kubrick. One. Kirk Douglas as this kind of um, masculine idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where he like he's a forty-year-old guy and it is kind of like <laughs> looks like slightly out of shape and has kind of like uh, thin little legs and stuff. And that if you were going to remake gladiator. that now, it would be the Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but this is the thing, though, and uh, not to jump ahead, but I really can't really imagine I really Lecter love... as, as, as imposing. But he, he doesn't but need to be I guess though, he has he's that got, viciousness. You know, he watches and he waits. And... Yeah. Well, that's the thing. He lulls the guards into a false yeah. sense. It's, it's like they point out how boring it's been and how he's just a big load of nothing. And there's a sense that he's lured them into a sense of complacency. But there's also even like when he does, when he has that like really horrific, brutal killing spree at the end, and again, it's while he's listening to the music, and it's that shot of uh, Hopkins, who up until this point, like Hopkins, Hopkins for the role didn't blink, and he also apparently, by his own account, modelled his voice on Catherine Hepburn. 
Um, so he's this very erudite, very refined, very sophisticated gentleman. But there's the moment where when he's chained the guard to the ground after, and he sprayed the mace in his face, where he just picks up the baton yeah. and while he's covered in blood, just whacks it down repeatedly. He's kind of grinning. But that's it. It's the yeah. face of Hopkins where you can like, that's the moment where you can see that like everything that Hopkins has been doing to that point, or everything that Lecter has sort of cultivated about himself, like the refined civil sort of like, persona that he projects of himself is just a way of sort of putting something over this thing um and it works really really well or at least it did for me yeah i suppose it's believe like sorry i'm always kind of like thinking of the practicalities about this i suppose like if if he's like kind of waiting for an opportunity and is engineered in such a way that incapacitating them takes very Very little physical effort timing the only thing that would have taken time is the hoisting your butt, your lad up onto the, the, yes, the, which the is butterfly ship. In the in the American flag. I love how much... Uh, I rewatched this recently. I imagine he used a lot of kind of levers. <laughs> Just <laughs> leverage. <laughs> and it's like Archimedes. Give, give me a... Give me a lever and I can move the world. I like the idea that like the guards are sitting there looking at his correspondence, wondering why he's drawing all of these complex leverage mechanisms for the plan that he has. <laughs> Also, say the Tennessee SWAT team are terrible. There's about twenty of yeah. them, including Chris Isaacs, downstairs. Yeah. They're not. There's only two lads upstairs with Lecter. Yeah, they're all just faffing <laughs> about the lobby having coffee. Yeah, um, or the bit where we shoot him in the leg and don't cry. <laughs> like the bit where it's like, uh, yeah, I think he's dead, but we should shoot him in the leg to be sure. Which is like, this is the kind of duty of care you probably should have like taken earlier in the film. But I like, and the film kind of talking about that sequence, which is a great sequence. It's where the camera, it's where the film goes full gothic horror. Yeah. It's and like, the music is great. Harvey Shore's yeah. music is lovely there as and well. The it's camera great swell. So pushes in and it's almost like Lecter's also installed a fog machine somehow in the room because it's backlit. And it's got this sort of like draped he's in a classical flag. gothic film. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's it exactly. Yeah. There's the moment where when you know, he's in the ambulance where they finally twig that the guy in the elevator shaft is not Lecter when he the guy the, the paramedic is sitting there and Lecter just sits up behind him like yeah. straight like a like zombie like Michael Myers yeah that's it yeah. exactly this is what makes it a, like a proper horror movie yeah. that, it, that, it, that like under, that he, he there's so much more of that in this than, than in like um, Seven for example yeah like they, 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 they really, yeah. Like, the gothic trappings, like yeah. obviously even like the the institution itself, but like the, the really macabre sort of decoration where you see that Brian Fuller. I imagine that was like oh, Brian yeah. Fuller looked at that guy tied up at the American Lexus flag. Like his murder like, tableaus. That's it. Yeah, yeah, we'll go. I can do three seasons with yeah. this. Um, I see murder angels right here. Um, is it? Is it also worth talking about when we're talking about Lecter? Um, just in terms of. One of, again, an interesting piece of criticism that I read, and I'm not entirely sure that I agree with it, but I think it's an interesting take, is that what distinguishes Lecter from the other men in the films, uh, particularly as it relates to Clarice, is that, and this is this is Roger Ebert talking, and he stated this repeatedly, and I, I think it's an interesting point, I'm not sure if I'd buy it entirely, but what defines Lecter as compared to the other men is that he tries to be a good man as much as his nature will allow him to be. In that he overtly, like the film is about coveting. The film is about looking. And he, there's a wonderful conversation, like how do you begin to covet? Do you seek out things to covet? You begin by coveting what you see all around you. And his cannibalism is obviously like a literalization of that. And repeatedly throughout Harris's work, you have this idea of bodies as raw material. Um, and the inability to recognize that a body contains a person or a soul. And instead just treat it as a resource to make a suit or as meat to be cooked or whatever. Um, but you, you also have with Lecter, you have this idea that 
he never really pretends to be anything more than what he is, but he's also exceedingly civil to people to the point that they are civil to him. I think that it's in Hannibal where mm. Barney describes him as eating the rude, free-range mm. rude. But even even here, there's a sense that like he never... And, and again, we'll, be, we'll probably talk about Hannibal later on, but... Here, yeah, there's never a sense. As well. Yeah, that he it's... never has a sexual desire for Clarice. Mm. He's one of the few men in Just... the film who never looks at her as a sexual object. But he I is getting he definitely... off on their conversations, though. I think, in a way, it's kind of it's beyond sex. In a way, it's all about he is a, he is feeding off her psychologically. So a I think psychic you're... vampire, as you yeah, describe him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's getting he's clearly getting a kick out of the yeah. the traumatic childhood stories, which in a way is kind of even more. Uh, exploitative or I mean I agree he certainly has a code and I think pop culture has this thing where if you're a bad guy with a code you're not really that bad uh, but it's why I like that scene where he's beating Pembry to death because it really establishes he is a terrifying and he may not necessarily be a threat to Starling now but as he says at the end she comes after him yeah I, I just have a problem with stuff like I've, I've literally fallen out with friends over this who see that Lecter as kind of a romantic figure yeah. and I go no I don't this is, this is, Hannibal runs with this and, well, that's really... it. and the, the, the book to be clear like because yeah. the, the ending of the book and we talked about like the book has a three act structure the first act is the bit that's Clarice and the FBI second act which is probably my favourite is the bit where Hannibal's in Florence and it succeeds because it does what and again this is probably what you're talking about with the bad guy with the code mm. Harris creates the character of Mason Verger who's only purpose yeah. is to exist so that you can root for Hannibal. But he does that in all three books. He's, um, he's very repetitious, actually, in that sense. In in terms of gum and the tooth fairy. There's always him. two killers, and there's yeah. always a killer who's even more of an, an apparent asshole than Lecter. Like they're okay. more of a scumbag. So you have Dollarhide. You yeah. have you have Jim Gum here. Yeah. And so Lecter looks more attractive by, by the fact that he's not you know as doesn't seem as, he's not a predatory pedophile like Mason Verger yeah. for instance. So even in in root for him in the in 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 Hannibal where Ray Liotta's character is kind of oh, yeah, saying yeah. oh I always thought he was kind of queer or something yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, very effeminate I don't know yeah. that yeah. art stuff and, yeah. but it, it seems it, it's just artsy fartsy yeah. the yeah. the idea of um, of Lecter as this kind of like romantic that's definitely kind of like written into these uh, books and films that it, 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 and, and and it's coming from Starling too yeah. there's some there's definitely some you know, like she's almost like defending um him to like her to Crawford um, and to yeah. other people as well I mean like it is worth noting and I think maybe just to talk about it very briefly like the serial killer in American fiction in general because Science of the Lambs and Red Dragon arrived at a point where it seemed like the American popular consciousness was really fixated on serial killers it's kind of interesting when you look at the demographics and the figures and the numbers um, because I think that the crime rate actually fell during the 90s as well but you had the same strange explosion of like forensic thrillers and fascination with like psycho killers and I kind of wonder if that was to do with the end of the Cold War and stuff like that and the idea of like wanting a moral antagonist or more like the thing about the serial killer in fiction is that it's always, it's generally random. And the idea is that anybody can be a victim of him and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And even if you can figure out, maybe you can figure out that rhyme and reason, you can catch him and you can make sense of a chaotic world. And I kind of, I, I is there... Some of this stuff started in the 80s with like, um, starting, I think it was then when in, in America they started to put kids on milk cartons and stuff like that. And and, and the, the, the whole kind of like... Um, paranoia about these kind of events that are fairly rare yeah um, so and so get blown up out of proportion yeah. I mean like you could argue that like it's also great for the FBI because the you know at the end of the Cold War 
their funding was cut hugely. Ah. Um, so they needed, I mean, there's a guy called Philip Simpson's written a whole book about this, about the fact that propaganda-wise, the FBI were fully on board with the Sands of the Lambs. They famously allowed them to film on site. Mm. Thomas Harris researched there. And it meant that they were able to represent themselves. I mean, the FBI has literally never actually caught a serial killer. Yeah. They profile serial killers, but... It's law enforcement who actually do the arrests. It was a bit like the war against crime, the gangsters in the 30s. It gave them a crusade... And, and allowed them to uh, shifting brands, yeah. and it was before they you needed, know the war on terror began, so they yeah, had this kind of they vacuum. They needed something to do before nine eleven. Well, yeah. that's it exactly, because like after nine eleven, the terrorists became the boogeyman of choice, and yeah. it's telling that like that's start, the point. Stop chasing Tony Soprano. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like in in the show where like it starts out as this kind of a thing where it's like oh. The FBI want to start a RICO investigation on yeah. me, and then nine eleven happens, and it's like they're almost everybody like gets siphoned off. Yeah. yeah, 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 and they're working on different projects. And it's kind of interesting because I think like a walk among a to- among the tombstones, which is a serial killer film from I think two thousand fifteen, like Liam Neeson thing. Liam Neeson thing. Yeah. And it's interesting because it explicitly positions its serial killer narrative as a bit of nineties nostalgia. Because the closing shot of the film, you've had no indication when the film set up to that point, but the closing shot of the film is pulling out from his bedroom window to reveal the twin towers standing in the background as if to say hey remember when serial killers were a thing um it was before 9 11 uh, which is kind of interesting because i like the the idea of the serial killer as an avatar of american anxiety in the 90s where everything sort of seemed random and arbitrary and violent but there wasn't the ideological definition of say the cold war or the war on terror so it was just what if somebody stabbed you what if somebody tried to make a meat suit of you what if somebody moved into your apartment and stole your life <laughs> single white female <laughs> yeah that is exactly what i'm going with. yeah I'm is that a serial killer narrative, though? I don't know. Oh, yeah, that sort of like. Si- I think I, you I, need between three or three to four <laughs> victims over an extended <laughs> period of time. So think, she definitely pushes a puppy out a window. So yeah, that's... I mean, why can't the puppy is a victim? The, Red flag. Yeah. Serial killers who are like, eh, mass murderer. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, oh, no, no. Mass murderers are different from serial yeah, killers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I believe mass killing as well, is it? Or? Mass murderers will um, correct people. Really? <laughs> is, it, is it because they don't want it? That's the difference. So serial killers are very, let's say, fair. I think in, I think in uh, that um, that movie, um, what was it? The um, With Woody Harrison. Oh, um, Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers. Which again would have been around the same time as well. Oliver Stone, written by Quentin Tarantino. I think, I think at one or point he clarifies that he's a mass murderer. Not, not a, serial. a serial killer. Yeah. But again, you have that idea of like random violence. Or a happening. spree killer, like that, you shoot up a high school or something. Yeah, and this yeah. was like a huge... And, it, and it's weird because you look at it and you see more mass shootings now, but it seems like American pop culture yeah. is less fixated on that sort of aspect of random violence now than it was during the 90s yeah, when you, it was less common. Like, you see... You see much much less um kind of horror um like the only thing i can think of is uh, we need to talk about kevin mm. where like they're dealing with a thing that actually happens yeah. um, fairly regularly yeah. There's, yeah there's an amazing film by denis villeneuve later yes. called polytechnic um and it's about the uh, po- uh a massacre that happened in montreal in the um. early 90s where um a guy came into the engineering college and sh- basically shot all the women that he could find because uh, he was he hated women and the film it's I just really recommend it Polytechnic it's incredible but you're, there's so few films about this subject yeah. absolutely even right. fewer that actually take off yeah as well yeah. which um, which is, is striking yeah. it's kind of interesting and it's how we're afraid of things we're not really afraid of perhaps I think also it's seen as less dramatic possibilities are less cinematic or less attractive from a pop culture perspective because I know in particular Polytechnic or they're filmed these those kinds of killers, I think, for whatever reason, are seen as less attractive villains than serial killers. 
Well, I mean, this is the thing where you have, like, natural-born killers, which is, like, a spree killer as a celebrity. Mm. And you could argue, yeah. I mean, like, you have this sort of discussion around the same time, like, the fascination with Dahmer, but Manson, who, when he was in prison, became, like, this celebrity figure as well. This weird American fixation on, like, serial killer is as it, celebrity. Yeah, is it that in order for one of those mass shooting movies to work, you'd, you'd, you'd almost, like, um, have to root for the mass shooter the way people do for... Oh, the for way that horror movies, say, put you in the perspective of the killer in a way that is exploitative and yeah. stuff. And I, I, I mean, pe- people aren't rooting for um, uh, for Bates, um, no, and 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 that movie kind of works. I think we well, identify with him though, uh, in in quite an interesting. I mean, there's that great scene where well, I wouldn't be the first one to point this out, where Bates is, is burying Mary, Marion's car in the oh, swamp. Oh, in the swamp, yeah. And there's a point where the car goes down and then it yes. sort of burps back up again. And as the audience member, you go. <laughs> Is he going to get caught? Yes. Um, and at that moment, you're completely t- identifying. It's it's shifted from identifying with the victim to the mm. villain. And so there's all kinds of complex mm. moral things. I mean, you, you even have like the famous opening shots from Halloween where you're in the killer's point of view shot. I absolutely adore Halloween as well. And there's this whole argument about whether horror... And this is interesting to tie us back to Science of the Lambs because in some ways perhaps it's a reclaiming. I mean, there's the whole Final Girls, uh, the, oh, the yeah. which is a fantastic yeah. book. Um, and it goes into like... Carol this, G. Clover. Yeah, yeah. And it goes into this whole discussion about whether horror is straight up misogyny or it can be reclaimed as a feminist narrative but the idea that like horror traditionally puts you in a puritanical perspective where you can vicariously enjoy the breaking of social norms like teenagers having sex and also revel in the fact that teenagers are punished for having that sex that you enjoy watching them have but they really shouldn't have had in the first place yeah the the um like a lot of kind of like i've i've, I've been listening to um in Voorhees we trust oh with yeah. and ross they they they're making a series about so um, maybe Cyril Mac Curry and Paul Rust because yeah. I mean um, The Ringer also has a Halloween as well podcast that's running oh. yeah um, so this is like the boom time for Serial Killer podcast uh, and again how much of how much of like the existence of Serial can we trace back to Science of the Lambs as well but they were talking about the extent to which <laughs> kind of like the, the kind of young boy is coming to this um, because there's 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 boobies in these kind of like like wanting to the thing you were saying about kind of like the the the, the weird kind of mix of wanting of, to voyeuristically objectify yeah. women and see kids having sex and also wanting to see them punished for it as well yeah which is yeah so I think it was satisfying like the fourteen year old kids <laughs> um, as as well as maybe satisfying. Uh, the more kind of like conservative America or satisfying both of them simultaneously because it allows you to no no I think this is interesting because Science of the Lambs allows you to reclaim that narrative in a way by explicitly making it a feminist by taking the slasher film I think one of the things it does is that whereas the I mean I think Halloween for instance is a really interesting film and and certainly the character of Laurie Strode is um, is really interesting and and complex um but uh, there's no doubt that her friends who are killed off, Annie and Linda, nobody yeah. gives a shit about poor Andy and Linda. They're just cannon fodder. But the difference in the Sands of the Lambs is that when Catherine is kidnapped, we really get it. Even though she's not actually in that many scenes, yeah. she, you get a chance to get a feel for her as a person. And she actually gets to be a little bit proactive in her own rescue when she um, lures the dog she in. She gets precious down in the well, and there's that great moment where the lotion scene, which yeah. I think has been parodied that often, that people kind of forget how horrible it actually yeah. is. I know when you see it in the context of the film, it's you realise that his use of the pronouns is just yeah. terrifying. Well, they actually discuss that later on when they're talking about like the press conference that her mother is giving, where it's like she's yeah. personifying him and trying to humanise her and stuff like that, which emphasises that what he's doing is dehumanising her beyond using her as a resource or a raw material. 
And also it, it means that the press conference ain't going to work on this lad, but oh, yeah. um, he's no well, conventional well, killer. But she sees the, the fingernail caught in the wall. Yeah. And like, it's it's really good filmmaking because it's not it, it's not sort of really rammed home, he's done this before, but we know he has. But she realises he's done this before and she just starts screaming. And it's, yeah. I think even at the end when Starling is, is on the rescue, the fact that she says to Starling, you... <laughs> Don't leave me here. <laughs> but it's such a human response. Yeah. Of course you'd say that if you were trapped in yeah, a it's like it's a person with a, psychopath. Yeah, there's a person with a gun you know, up there. FBI trainee yeah, is yeah. blundering about in the dark. You know, it's yeah. it's it's just something quite real and something I think very humane about it. Yeah. She's and, not just a non entity like in, in a lot of slasher films where they are just there yeah. to be killed. And it's worth noting by the way that by the yeah. time they're to pair them. By the yeah, time the film exactly yeah by the film by the time the film shifts to Gum's perspective at the climax where you're seeing through his night vision goggles um, it's not you're not rooting for him um, as opposed to I mean and again I, I not, don't think you ever I mean no no I know but I mean when when you talk about like when you talk about if like, you when, do root for Jim Gum please seek yeah. help <laughs> uh, but you were talking about like uh, you were talking about Psycho where it's like yeah. when the bit where the car bubbles up and you're like oh my god yeah. is Norman going to get caught what the hell does this mean or even where it's like Halloween where you are for a certain point in Michael's perspective I mean Norman is quite likable yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean the at the start. Well, we, we sort of we can't help but like him. He's well, the, charming. He's kind of, and know. it's also the film sort of structured it so that it's not his fault that he's the way that he is, mm. which allows you, I think, a certain extent of. of and I but, think that's interesting that like Red Dragon does that to a certain extent with Dollarhide, where Dollarhide yeah. gets a whole big backstory. Tries to humanize him. That explains, and I, I think it does a relatively good job in that. Like, there's the great line from Will Graham where he's like, "As a child, I pity him. As an adult, he's unforgivable." Yeah. Science of the Lambs doesn't do that with Gum quite pointedly. Edward it, Norton is my <laughs> Graham. Will Graham. Yeah. 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 I love I love that scene in Red Dragon where he where he's, up in the bedroom uh, with the kid is not yeah 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 where yeah. he starts saying you're just a disgusting you know, animal like yeah animal. And, but it yeah. makes it makes Dollarhide pitiable in a way that Gum never is which is interesting and it like Gum you you never and you talked about this where and again I don't think it's a conscious thing but in slasher films you do occasionally identify with the killer in a way that's deeply uncomfortable in Science of the Lambs by the time you shift to Gum's perspective there's no chance of that happening which I think is great filmmaking yeah. from them. Yeah, but he, he um, as Bernice says, um, Gum is 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 the person in that movie who we don't identify with, and and, and the uh, purpose of 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 him is to show that that um, like in all these um, Harris works, that that actually Le- Lecter is like uh, kind of good in comparison, not that bad. The 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 interesting thing is, is um, you were you were talking about how this kind of like reclaims. The horror movie to to an extent for for to to tell a feminist narrative is very interesting because it strikes me how 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 deeply misogynistic um her uh, uh, most kind of like slasher horrors are the knife because, is very obviously no 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 okay. but not 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 even not even just that because that that's listeners the part that can't see after. the gesture that Darren's making. Um, <laughs> It's the classic stabbing motion. <laughs> that's, that's what that, what that is. Was. That's what, yeah, <laughs> no, I was talking about the 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 thing that the emotion that I thought you were making, okay. <laughs> which is, which is, which is at the start of the movie, where 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 like of of a slasher movie, we desire. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the woman the, the female so lead. We, we see like this like, let's go skinny like, dipping down yeah. by uh, so, know, so, so, dead so, teenagers lane so you see all of this nudity which, 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 which is relatable in, in, in terms of like these 
these kind of women hating guys like they're they are are very um sexually attracted to women but they can't have them so what it gives you in a movie is them all being like butchered yeah so you have it's, that attraction the woman you literally yeah. can't have because she's a projection on a screen yeah. and the satisfaction of seeing her butchered which again yeah which is but, which but, is which is there, there's horrific actually, there's yeah. actually been a fair amount of like i've put my academic hat on yeah Hat on. Um, it's an actual hat. <laughs> it's an actual hat. There's been a, a lot of uh, really interesting stuff done on slasher films in recent years. And one of the things that people have done is there's a guy called Adam Rockoff who does this in particular. He's got a good pick, great book called, uh, oh God, I want to say Slashing to Pieces, but it's something Adam Rockoff. But Wait, anyway, in the show notes. He, anal- he analyzes um, hundreds of slasher films and he says that actually the, this, the preconception that it's all about female victims is not true. It's actually pretty 50-50. Mm. And that male victims are just as... I mean, you think at the Friday, the 13th films, as, certainly the way in which they're shot and the women are perved on a way that the guys aren't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think Friday the 13th as a franchise is... Yeah. I will fight people over this. I think it's nonsense. Yeah. But, Friday the 13th um, Part 2 is one of the most I think they're very good films. I think they're terrible. really boring. Do you, do you, you know, even hate Friday the 13th X? Uh, yes, uh, I do. <laughs> Jason Space. Even though it's got, I think, a cameo from David Cronenberg. It does, love, it does. But, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so it it, ten- it is a bit more balanced in terms of victims than maybe the popular conception is. Yeah. Mm. But I mean, I think even in say Halloween, but you don't get shower it, scenes as it. much with the men. Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, except for, have you seen Revenge earlier this year? Uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I thought Revenge was really interesting because it does that. It does. Yeah. It basically reverses the dynamic at the end where you do have a shower scene with a male victim. Yeah, um, it's, it, like it, the last 30, 35 minutes or yeah. so, he's completely starker. Yeah, so, which is yeah. great. The problem is, isn't that women get murdered in these. It's the, the, the it's the dimension of it where where it, it's 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 kind of like first setting them up as 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 these sexual objects and mm. then kind of like have have having yeah. them murdered like in horror movies you want you 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 want to fear um and 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 and, and uh, for these kind of like horrific murders to kind of um, take place in a way that's kind of visceral and shocks you yeah. and scares you so that's not like that's not a problem it's kind of um what what are the kind of contexts behind those i mean it's it's interesting because again i I should stress i absolutely love carpenter's halloween i think carpenter's halloween is one but it's it's interesting how myers in that movie i think he kills almost as many men as women the film just doesn't luxuriate in the way that he kills men the men are killed incidentally and the women are killed as a a statement of purpose but one of the things i don't know if you've seen the david gordon green uh sequel yes i saw it last week ah i was there as well yeah um but jamie lee was great she is great yeah. And, and they, but the way that Green does it, which is fascinating, is he preserves Meyer's fascination as a character with female victims. Mm. But there's a much greater emphasis on depicting the violence that's done to men as opposed to women. There are lots of shots of men dying yeah. and men dying incidentally while Myers is murdering women, but the murdering of the women is not put as an object of focus. And I don't so, want to give too much away because it's not out yet, but there's a scene where there's a character established who's really likable. He's only in it for about 10 minutes and the character is placed in peril and the character does not survive and you feel genuinely oh yeah you know like you they're not just kind of yeah. uh, annoying yeah. non-entities you do feel a sense of oh no yeah yeah um and i, I think that's really important i think that's very clever i oh, love the autopsy scene oh yes yeah the, with the little bomb under the nose because for example. i think it's been such a hugely influential film anyway but i think that autopsy scene is seminal in terms of where i don't think you would have a tv show like csi for instance if it, that's one of the first times that you would have had uh 
vaguely realistic autopsy scene in mainstream American cinema yeah. that it wasn't like Faces of Death or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we have a lot of that in X Files. Very influential. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have had the X Files. I mean, yeah, well, Dana yeah. Scully was basically Starling. Wasn't and and she Mulder is very much Will Graham. You want to talk about boring men who maybe can't act as well as their female counterparts, but are with the basement office who are vulnerable and just. Hey, he's very charismatic. <laughs> Take that, uh, Will Graham. But yeah, the X Files is very much its base. It's an adaptation of Thomas Harris's stuff to the point where. Um, the spin-off oh, no, series, yeah, to the point where uh, the spin-off series uh, Millennium was oh, very much. I love it was, Millennium. I, I adore yeah. Millennium as well. It, it, Frank Black. Yeah, it leans yeah. into the weird aspects of the Harris novels, but like the the final episode of Millennium is they do Science of the Lambs. They unapologetically just say, "Look, we're getting cancelled. Let's do Science of the Lambs for a two-parter." Didn't the um, X Files though? Wasn't there a first season episode? What was basically Science of the Lambs with Brad Dourif beyond and Brad the Dorf. sea? Oh, yeah, it was. And I think the, that would be quite good. And the fourth season has one with Mulder with Tom Noonan, uh, uh, Paper Hearts, where it's like, and the premise of the episode is great. This, it's a Vince Gilligan episode, but the premise is Mulder works so hard to get inside this serial killer's head. Yeah. What if the serial killer got into Mulder? Now say that like Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I say. Um, but uh, also uh, if we're talking about particular scenes that I love there's something interesting in Lecter and and I think we're right when we say the film maybe you know turns him into a hero character a bit too much for a dude who likes eating people Uh, but there's a scene at the end which I find really interesting which is the bit where he's free Mm. and where he rings Clarice at her graduation um, and he asks her, have the lambs stopped crying yet? And there's this wonderful... No, no, the lambs are screaming, not crying. A lamb can cry. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very <laughs> stressful situation. I love that Brittany's like, I'm going to call you on that one. Um, yeah, I'm from a farming background. I know from personal experience. <laughs> wake up when you hear the, uh, the Sobbing gently. <laughs> Dear God, what have you done to Fred? You also get really worried. Sheep get worried. Sorry, that's a farming joke. We call it sheep worrying. Anyway, I won't come back. But um, there's the moment. Okay, have the land stopped screaming yet then, uh, if we're being accurate. But there's that wonderful moment where they're calling and it's that wonderful ambiguous reaction shot of Hopkins where he says, I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. He sort of hangs up the phone. But there's this strange moment between the two of them where it almost feels, and again, maybe this is the over-romanticization of yeah. the relationship between Hannibal and Clarice. There's definitely a connection there. There's a connection there, but it seems like... I don't it's over-romanticization because it kind of works well. Like, yeah. it's very problematic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, but, like, why are we so afraid of things being problematic? They, 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 I think that it makes it, like, a more interesting movie. Yeah. But I think that one of the things I find interesting about that shot, that reaction shot of Hannibal after he's had this conversation, and he's like, I'll make no plans to call on you, and he hangs up the phone. There's a moment where the camera focuses on Lecter's face, and it almost seems like a heartbreaking scene. And obviously, um, when Harris wrote the book, he didn't have any plans to do a sequel. Apparently, it took a boatload of money, and it took, what, 11 years to do it. And when you read it, there's a real sense of uh, he's maybe not as happy doing it as he would like to be. Uh, but there's a sense that, like, for Lecter, the irony is that when he was in captivity with Clarice, uh, when he was in captivity and when he was being interviewed by Clarice, he was alive and he was free and he was vibrant in a way. Now he's actually out in the open and Clarice has, like, opened herself up to him, that quid pro quo arrangement, in a way that, and it's implied that maybe, like, one of the reasons why I like Clarice is because she doesn't hold anything back. Mm. She's, like, she's made the calculation in her head that to do this thing, she needs to open herself up to him completely and have no artifacts, no lies, to let, you know, every part of her exposed to this monstrous man. And, like, that, in a sense, sort of satisfies and intrigues him in a way that, like, obviously Chilton's pretensions don't, and the way that he finds, like, the flutist at the opera offensive to him. But there's a sense that in that moment, in that conversation, he's had enough of Clarice 
that he's had as much of Clarice as he can ever have. He's he's seen her soul, she's born her soul to him, and that's it. She's of no more interest to him almost in that moment. And there's a sense of sadness in that closing shot where he wanders off and disappears into the crowd, chasing Chilton down in Africa, where it seems almost like this... And again, this is the gothic irony of it, this sort of grand horror fiction, where it's like, even though Lecter is technically free... He is somehow less complete than he was when he was held in captivity. That he's somehow like he's less satisfied or less fulfilled, or he has less freedom or less opportunity. He's less satisfied than he was. I don't know about that. Okay. No, that's I think he wrong. looks really <laughs> satisfied. I mean, the final line is, "I'm having an no old friend, friend for, for dinner. dinner," and and I remember I can't remember what critic it was, but somebody pointed out that kind of in a way the problem with the rest of the franchise is that they took that last line and made it the basis that sort of can't be I'm having an old friend for dinner bowels in or bowels out yeah that, <laughs> that basically becomes the basis of, of Hannibal yeah. and particularly Red Dragon which is just regrettable on many levels mainly because Hannibal Lecter has a ponytail in it but um, I don't know I don't, I don't get that sense that he's um, you know it's torn apart pierced by romantic longing necessarily okay. I think he's um He's, he seems like a guy pretty happy with life. Oh. He's got a dapper <laughs> man from Del Monte really suit. Yeah, he's going to get to eat Chilton. I mean, I think he looks. I think he's happy enough with how things are. I think are. you could argue that it's a little bit bittersweet. But to think that he's he's kind of like less free now than he was in prison is like, well, in a way, no, <laughs> and in another way, also no. <laughs> Quite literally, <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fair. It is worth noting um, that uh, Hopkins himself has confessed that there should only have been one Hannibal Lecter movie yeah. that he did. He shouldn't have done the ones that followed, which is a shame, because I, I like the completely, like, off-the-wall, bonkers quality of I like of, the Bowser and Bowser. Yeah, I like yeah, Hannibal, actually. Um, I think just the um, fact of having um, the casting of Starling be different makes it, because I think Moore is very good in it, but... Her starling is so just the very fact that it's more rather than Foster yeah. gives it a very different kind of resonance. Yeah. Um, Foster, I think, turned it down in part because she read the novel. Yeah, and um, the ending's very different, of course. Yes, but I, when she read the novel, it wouldn't have been. I think the novel has yeah him running off with Clarice and then being like her being his sister lover. But she's also crucially well, been uh, completely brainwashed, brainwashed and, and drugged. drugged and it's actually night. really again, I've fallen out with people over this. I have a friend yeah. who thinks that's a romantic end, what? and I'm going. But she he drugged oh. her, brainwashed her, dug up the bones of her dead father in a therapy session. This is not a healthy relationship. <laughs> they, uh, but <laughs> they dance together because um, uh, that—that's my image. Is that like the book describes it almost like that scene yeah. from Beauty and the Beast in the ballroom. Um, but Barney sees them across the room at the opera, and they're like the most glamorous couple there. But, <laughs> isn't that fabulous? Yeah. Wouldn't you love? It's kind of bad. I sort of wish the film had gone with that, though. Romance as expressed in kind of, like, contemporary popular fiction is often kind of weird, though. Creepy like, and controlling. Yeah, creepy and controlling. And people are reading it and it's like, oh, this is, this is wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I wish I could have this in my life. And I feel like, like this is... You where, probably could. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like Hannibal is a bit more than Wuthering Heights, to pick an example. I feel like it's maybe a yeah. little bit... Well, Heathcliff is also an asshole. Oh, Heathcliff uh, is, yeah. is an yeah. asshole, yeah. yeah. Just to be clear. But I feel like there's a level of degrees there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do love yeah. the... Um, well, Precious. We haven't talked about Precious. But sorry, I'll <laughs> That's some good dog acting. Precious, I'll yeah. let Andrew... Yeah. I, I, I do love the um, uh, the um, the scene where the, the 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 face is being cut off and he, and 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 he's in the ambulance and, and just, just kind of yeah, like uh, and he's peel, covered in viscera off the face because it, it, it's something that like uh, Jim Carrey taught us in 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 uh, Cable Guy that oh, we yeah, could all do with, ham, with like the slices of ham yeah. on your face just kind of yeah. that's always fun if if. <laughs> 
if Andrew if, has a beard listeners as well, <laughs> just to just to get that yeah. image into your head. Whenever I'm on my own eating an entire packet of ham, I like to put it on my face. Point, yeah, yeah, put it all on my face. It's a free country. Yeah. Lie down on the bus and then yeah, it's probably good. And then just like Maybe sit the up, Lewis, the red man. sit up behind the person who's sitting in front of you vaguely, menacingly. But uh, sorry, you were going to talk about Precious. I just wanted to mention Precious because I think it's one. There's a, I did an article a while ago about, about animals in horror fiction. There's actually been loads written about Precious. Because um, there's a whole fascinating thing in, in the film where um, Gum can't really... He, he treats humans like animals and animals yeah. like humans in a weird way. And I, I should say, Precious, I think that dog's INDB listing, that dog was in a lot of films in the 90s, apparently. Oh. I can't remember the other ones, but she has a very thorough... Uh, list of castings and I think it's one of the finer dog performances yeah. in horror cinema yeah. Palm dog, right she here. is a heroine she saves Catherine Baker Martin not, not, not by she intent she keeps her alive did you, long enough but, did, you you say, know. did you just say palm dog have you, have you not heard of this now, the, palm, <laughs> the palm dog is an award that they give at the Cannes Film Festival where all oh. the critics typically led by Peter Bradshaw get together and vote on the best dog performance of a given year <laughs> the artist from, the dog from the artist is one of the big like it's one mm-hmm. of the sort of big categories there's some debate about whether they should have expanded the artist was probably hoping there was a bigger award than the palm dog sitting there in its little bow tie collar yeah it's like they shouldn't give the palm dog every year (laughs) then it's just meaningless there was some debate I think a couple of years about whether they could expand it to monkeys I can't remember what the film was Um, was it Uncle Boomy or something like that but there's something that involved a monkey that was apparently amazing and there was some debate among the people involved with the palm dog was it Congo was it Amy but then it's not as good of a pun yeah that's that you know Um, maybe it's one of those things pun that chimp doesn't work yeah not at all Um, but it is it is interesting and again this is the gothic horror element of it where there is an element of body horror that we haven't talked about here where humans are just a resource and it happens throughout um, throughout sort of Harris's uh, sort of uh, you know What's what's a filmography book for books? Bibliography. That's the word that I'm looking for. Um, I this couldn't is a, remember from this, this is a film podcast. We are yeah. very good with it. We're very specialized. That's my job going when I go back on Monday. Book list. What do we say? Dar- Darren's written more books than he's read. Uh, yeah, that, that's probably true. Um, but the, the thing with that is that it, it sort of, it's... There's this recurring motif that runs through Harris's work of transformation, both bodily and psychologically as well, which is kind of interesting. And it's literalized here, obviously, with Gum trying to transform himself into it. And then that sort of Clarice becomes that in, in Hannibal, where she's transformed into the sister and stuff. And it's kind of interesting because that is a very horror theme rather than a sort of a literal sort of psycho killer theme in that I don't know how... I'm not an expert in forensic psychology, but I don't imagine most serial killers are building like things out of people, generally speaking, outside of gain. Um, so it's... Yeah, you mean you had someone like Jeffrey Dahmer who was trying to create human zombies uh, yeah. by pouring out... I mean, so you yeah, did some brain. horrible cases where people were trying to literally transform people, yeah. but yeah, generally they're they're much less complicated than yeah, the just, killers we get in Yeah, the... in fiction, which is, again, the romanticization of the serial killer. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think... That... Uh, yeah, I feel like if, if, if I were a serial killer, it would be, like, fairly clear why I want to kill, but then I would be like... <laughs> I kind of want to add some interesting kind of aspects to this. <laughs> it's, yeah. a real, it's a real like, opportunity to work out well, your own I, signature. Yeah. I think oftentimes in in like when when you have these serial killers, it like it gets more uh, complex as they go on, <laughs> and like they're they're kind of like trying things at the beginning, and then it, well, like, I think the the argument is that forensically they try to recreate the original thrill of the the first act. I believe is the forensic sort of in real life, but I think it's interesting. Like Hannibal, the TV show. 
sort of runs with this metaphor like mm. completely what if, like there's a moment where like they trans- one guy transforms a dead body into a bear another guy transforms it into a beehive to pick an example there's the mushroom ones yeah. one as well which I find particularly disgusting they're like is it fermenting as well somebody uses yeah. a body to ferment there's another one where he uses yeah, he uses the body to turn it into a cello, which is kind of... And it's, it's interesting because it gets at that body horror that we were talking about with the thing, which is that realisation that your body is just like a disgusting. physical... It's disgusting, but it's also just you a... You were talking phys- about how the eye is like full of this kind of like jelly. Aqueous and, and vitreous yeah, humour. it's just like sticking out so for soft. like a bird to yeah. come along and bite her. Yeah, um, and that's sort of... <laughs> but the realisation that our bodies are literally just like instruments and materials and like our, you know, that our flesh isn't that different from leather, which is terrifying of itself, even before you apply the idea of a serial killer thinking that and acting upon it yeah, which is very very unsettling yeah and putting all this sexuality and stuff as well on, on top of it yeah alright so I think that about wraps it up but just in terms we of we want to talk more about the dog <laughs> about the dog about Precious to bring it back into life yeah, the, 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 um, no I, 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 I just wanted her performance to be recognised yeah. I felt that I was important dog I, performers are massively overlooked in this in this market I, 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 particularly with CGI eating into the roles that dogs would traditionally play many miniature very... poodles are well known in horror I think Precious was oh. a trailblazer for her, for her I think the forward yeah. and back as well between what what what's the girl's name again? Um, Catherine Martin? Liz uh, Catherine. Catherine Catherine yeah yeah um, and uh, and Precious too. <laughs> where kind of like, oh yeah, where she's trying to communicate with. Them. Yeah yeah. They got yeah. their own spin off. They solve mysteries. <laughs> but I mean, there's a sense that yeah, there's a sense that Precious sees Catherine more as a person than Gum does. And yeah. also, when she's walking away from the house, she's still she still got Precious. Dog, yeah. yeah. Um, I think in the no- in the novel is it implied that she adopted Precious? Um, no, a fireman keeps the ah, dog. Because okay. yeah. I remember the dog does get a nice yeah. home at the end, and I remember that was when I was reading. It, and I was like, at least the dog got a happy ending. Yeah. The idea of a person kind of like associating more with animals than with people—that is that—that's fairly common. Like, oh, yeah. You see that well. a lot. Well, that, like, that's the whole premise of John Wick as a, yeah. as a film yeah. franchise. Those, those, those but in real are, life as well, the Moore's murders—they. Um, were really upset because their dog uh, died while they were in police custody and they were much more upset about the fact that the dog then they yeah. murdered the a bunch of children or, they, um, they had it on The Sopranos as yeah. well where like every any any time it's to do with an animal well that's like, Tony where I think oh, somebody the racehorse the racehorse gets upset about the racehorse yeah. about yeah. the and dog and then beats Ralph yeah. about, yeah. about the dog that Christopher uh, sits on yeah yeah, they're like true, true. But the ducks. Yeah, but yeah. I mean that's also that's that's also like a marker of it's his like sociopathy. The sentimentality, yeah. yeah. Mm. But it's also a marker of his sociopathy that he he sees he has a better idea identifying with animals uh, and recognizing that animals who are deferential to him and obviously lower than him on the food chain are more deserving of his respect than people who you know he doesn't see as equals. Yeah, but like we, I I think most people will 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 meet people in their lives and they're not serial killers, but they're <laughs> but they're but they're definitely. Like like misanthropic and they more love in- animals yeah. Yeah. Um, well I mean my, my mother has, has argued and I, I love my mother very much we have a very healthy relationship it's not a Norman Bates situation to be clear I feel it's strange that I, I have feel to like clar- the more you say that I yeah. feel like it's strange <laughs> I have to clarify that but this yeah. is the podcast that it's been um, but she has at point suggested that she maybe loves the dogs as much as uh, her children. Oh yeah, I'd be concerned. Well, about that. I'd be checking that. Will yeah. Um, I mean, you're the do- the house was left to the dogs. Yeah. I mean, you're fine though, but those dogs like, <laughs> they are. I wouldn't great. take it personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm competing against those dogs. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I think it's about time to wrap up. But just before we go, uh, what we normally do is we normally ask uh, our guests to suggest something for our listeners to bring a little joy into that. Now, keep in mind this is our Halloween episode, so maybe something scary, something interesting you've been watching, something you've been reading that you'd recommend listeners sort of dive into. Yeah, um, if 
if you're into serial killer films uh, as you probably are having made it this far into the Science of the Lambs episode um, I'd really recommend uh, it's quite a small low budget film I think it's made for about $12,000 it's called Found oh. and um, it's based on a novel, novella by a guy called Todd Rigney and it's one of the most disturbing serial killer films I've ever seen um, and the, I'll just tell you the, the basic concept this is not a spoiler this happens in the first 30 seconds um, a little boy is about 10 or so he sort of uh, hero worships his older brother and one day he goes hoking about in the brother's room and he discovers a human head in a bowling bag and what happens next you'll have to find <laughs> out but um, it's called found it's it's absolutely fantastic and by the time you get to the end of the film it's just genuinely really devastating and uh, yeah I watched it really late one night and did not have a great night's sleep so that's my highest recommendation Cool. I'm giving a thumbs up. Yeah, listeners, listeners can't see, um, but there, there a, are really two thumb. thumbs up being raised. Yeah. Um, actually, interesting along that line, there's a lot of that interesting low-budget serial killer stuff that's still being made. I think perhaps because serial killers are possible to realise on a low budget yeah. nowadays, in terms of as opposed to CGI spectacle or terrorist attacks. Because I think Creep was out a couple of years oh, ago yeah, as well, yeah. which was the a similar Glass one. Brothers. That's it, well, it was Mark. Mark I don't. I don't it? know if it was Jay. But oh, you're right. Was, I think it was a solo. I think, I think it was just Mark yeah. by himself. And it's interesting because the Duplass brothers are like mumblecore, so they do like stuff like Cyrus with uh, what with uh, John C. Riley and um, what's his name Jonah, Jonah Hill and yeah. Marissa Tomei and it's this like quirky comedy of and they did like Jeff who lives at home and it's this sort of quirky comedy and it's like oh Mark Duplass is doing a movie by himself it's like I wonder what sort of quirky comedy it's going to be and it's like no it's about this journalist who answers who finds uh, I think it's a Craigslist ad from a serial killer who's looking for a friend um, and it's like that seems like it would, could possibly be a weird Duplass Brothers movie and it's like no. Now actually, it gets yeah, it's really actually dark. quite creepy. It is incredible, as, uh, as the name creep implies. But it sort of escalates. It escalates really, really well. Because there's a lot of tension it's at the start. about comedic. Whether, yeah, about yeah. whether or not this guy actually is a killer or whether he just claims to be one. And they have this sort of like this thing that you have. And again, it's a lot of journalist fiction where a journalist begins sort of like oh, vastly underestimating their subject and wandering into massive amounts of peril based on their own arrogance and curiosity. And then sort of like the hammer coming down, as it were. But it works really, really well. Could I just mention one more film um, that actually I think is an even better serial killer film Ooh. than found? But if anyone's got the streaming app Shudder, it's a film called The Eyes of My Mother. And uh, it's a sort of a rural backwoods horror film about a very dangerously isolated young woman. And it's amazing. It's just, I really recommend it. It's maybe, I'm not sure if I'd call it a straightforward serial killer film, but it's incredible. And it's actually got interesting overlaps with the Ed Gein story. Ah, as well. We're Without about saying anything else. The it's shadow a, that it casts. And it's in black and white and mostly in Portuguese. Ah, it's a very niche film. It's, it's a gorgeous film, but also it will make you very, very unhappy in a good way. <laughs> make you want to be happy that you're unhappy um, yeah. Andrew do you have anything you'd like to recommend I was struggling to think because it's it's not really a genre that, I, that I'm very well versed in I remember we we, we recently watched the, the Netflix's Open House yeah. horror movie and I was like for me, like, like I came away from it thinking like was that even that bad because it was like <laughs> on the bottom 100 movies of all time ever made as like, like, oh like, that's really yeah yeah it's they, just kind of dull it's, yeah, yeah, it's, really it's, boring. it's not great but I was like kind of like there is a lot of stuff in the first kind of part of the movie that's kind of scary interesting yeah um, um, and they, to- they touched on a lot of the beats but that's not the one I'm recommending that was just a struggle I was trying to think of like what, what horror movies do I know and what did I find um, horrific but it, like I feel now um, I don't um, it, it, it's I'm going to say I'm going to say uh, audition 
Oh, oh yeah. they, it, it's, it's carry, 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 carry. Yeah, yeah. it's gonna like. <laughs> I think it's it's a it's like a horrible, terrifying oh. movie that really kind of stays with you. But it begins I, as like a rom com. You can yeah. see it starring Meg Ryan and like Tom Hanks, exactly. and then it and then it it gets you. It's Cathy Mike, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's 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 written by uh, Ryan Markami, who 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 has other uh, like um, horrific stuff, like um, almost transparent blue. That I, like I, I I had a girlfriend one time who was reading it. I opened on a random page and it's like, oh, this is horrible. Like I've read American Psycho <laughs> and, and and thought that was bad, but this is just like kind of horrific so the 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 the, the, the um i find it difficult to i guess recommend horror but for something that really kind of upset me um, I'd, I'd, I'd have to well, recommend audition can I say, the guy who directed the eyes of my mother his next film is an adaptation of ryu murakami's piercing See? and oh, really? it's meant to be brilliant it's going to be at the horathon actually nice. oh okay uh, and yeah. the horathon which may be happening as this episode's released when's it on uh, oh, do you know what day it's is it the twenty fifth? Oh, I think it's on the sat the sat- Sunday or the Monday. Oh, so if you yeah. if you're listening to this live, yeah, you can you can you can actually probably hopefully buy tickets to it. Um, so it'll still be available. Awesome. Um, I I would point out like in terms of audition, I've a sort of maybe a, just go along anyway. See yeah. if there's any scalps outside. <laughs> <laughs> but I've I've seen um I, I watched audition as a child. Again, this is one of the things where my parents wouldn't let me watch movies. But I'm actually convinced. Like as a child, you wouldn't have been a child. The the the, the, the I think the point where kind of like audition was coming into the kind of consciousness I would have been about 14 of, years old yeah would have been 12 no, no I remember exactly when I saw it I remember exactly when I saw it because we were on holidays had, in Japan no I had convinced my parents um, to get a TV in my room with the promise that I would certainly not stay up late and watch inappropriate things on it um, so first night's, first night's installed what I do I stay up late and watch inappropriate things Channel 4 in 1999 was running a Japanese horror mm. season so it would have been late 1999 and they had Ringu I think that's um, when I first saw Ring. It scared yeah. the shit out of me. That's it exactly. Yeah. And I was at the time yeah. I would have been twelve. Because those yeah. the, the oh. likes of Ringu and Audition only really like reached a broader audience much later. And about five years later, but yeah, this is Channel Four did them every Monday. But I remember like I watched Ringu. That scared the hell out of me. Can I just say it because I have a grudge about this? Mark Kermode introduced it and he gave away the f- <laughs> ending. Pardon my language, but I'm still very angry about this. He said uh, the thing that happens at the end, yeah. and he described, and then such and such happens at the end. <laughs> People who have... I mean, you just, they... just assume that everybody's seen this Japanese horror film that was only released a year ago that... in Japan. Maybe you had Mark Kermode, but I hadn't. And Kermode and Mayo, um, like when they're talking about the, the... It's like people write in and Mayo is reading them. Maybe because Kermode gives away things. But Mayo will be reading it and then he'll say... Like in, like later in the movie when, but overall I thought it was like, like he'll, 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 he'll stop kind of like. Just shy of giving yeah, everything yeah. away. But like, so I watched Ringer, it scared the hell out of me. I put, I literally put, cause I was 12, a, like a chair up against the door of the wardrobe to keep sensible. it closed. Yeah, which was sensible. Yeah. Um, and it took me like a week to get over. I didn't sleep that night. So what did I do the following Monday night? I decided, hey. I'll try it again. There can't possibly be another Japanese horror as part of the horror season that's just as scary. And it was Audition. And the thing about Audition is, as we point out, it lures you in. So I was watching the first hour and I was like, this is actually quite pleasant. I don't see why this is in a horror season. And then it gets you. 
Um, so that, that really got me. In terms of horror movies I'd recommend, I think I recommended a few weeks ago, but Revenge, which we talked oh, about yeah. earlier. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Um, which is a sort of, it's French-Canadian. Coralie Desplant, is it? Yeah. It's a fe- female, French female After, filmmaker. Yeah, and it, it's great. It sort of weaponizes the female does, games. Does audition terrify you and I, Darren, more because we're like single men? This could happen to us. Yeah. I mean, when you suggested that I find my next girlfriend by setting up a reality TV show, like dating competition, I would put a mixer on that base purely on the experience of having watched audition um, but yeah so that, that one I'd recommend Revenge Revenge is fantastic it's vivid it's rich it's colorful it's playful um, if people are looking for some Bernice Murphy in their lives can they find you online on Twitter anywhere like that yes I'm on Twitter uh, at Murph Gothic because uh, ah, I read a lot about gothic things um, and I'm also I've got a few books out the most recent one is an edited collection with a colleague of mine called 21st Century Popular Fiction it's only 14.99, and Ooh. we have article, great articles on people like Gillian Flynn if you've recently watched nice. Sharp Objects and you're looking for a good, yeah. a good and article Gone Girl about and Gillian Widows Flynn. is coming out as well it is soon. I mean really she is she's Widows. actually becoming nearly I think as significant as a screenwriter as she is as a novelist so um, but I mean the Flynn Widows, is fantastic the Widows had has her the Widows has like her name as big as McQueen's yeah. which is remarkable for a screenwriter more people will know her you see than yeah. will know um, Steve McQueen yeah. yeah so I'm really really excited about that um, so that's a shame oh I see what you did there um, but, I didn't uh, get that for a minute yeah. actually. no I do <laughs> yeah, don't worry yeah. he's got a real hunger for it though I find um, but what we're going to do is we'll put that in the show notes um, you can find Andrew online at A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A thank you Andrew I will also include that in the show notes you can find me at Darren Rose you can follow the podcast at At The 250 you can follow us on Stitcher on iTunes on SoundCloud and now also on Spotify um, because we're moving away from the random number generator I can also tell you what we'll be doing next Spotify. week <laughs> next week we will be covering we'll be doing our anniversary special to celebrate the fact that we have been doing this for two years now and then, <laughs> bemoan or bemoan or complain and then next week after that we'll be doing Double Indemnity with Carl um, we're past the point of almost no return yeah. um, but anyway <laughs> take it easy guys bye bye